To another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Chris Bolton. Chris is a maths teacher and the former second in department at King Solomon Academy, where he worked alongside fellow podcast guest Bruno Reddy, achieving incredible GCSE results in challenging circumstances. Chris now works for Teach First, where he is Associate Director of Participant Development, recruiting and training nearly 200 new teacher educators for the PGDE program. Chris's blog, To The Real, is an absolute must for all teachers, covering a wide range of issues, including how aspects of cognitive science, memory, philosophy, and even business principles can be applied to education. I flipping love that blog. Now, if any of you have had the pleasure of speaking to Chris and you have listened to one of my podcasts before, then you will be not at all surprised that the combination of Barton plus Bolton does not equal brevity. Indeed, Chris and I agreed to talk for two hours and I had a list of questions to get through covering areas such as questioning, schemes of work, variation theory, problem solving and more. However, in the end, I only really managed to ask one question. How does Chris plan a lesson? But I tell you what, his answer is fascinating. So in covering that question, we dived into issues such as why is planning a lesson the wrong way to approach planning? How and why does Chris break a topic, in this case simultaneous equations, into individual concepts? How has Chris been influenced by the work of Siegfried Engelmann? Can you teach the way Chris describes without the supporting behavior and school ethos? How do you differentiate in a model of direct instruction? And indeed, does differentiation even matter? How do you interleave throughout a sequence of lessons and what happens if students get stuck on a given concept? How can you tell that you've taught a successful sequence of lessons? And finally, what has Chris learned from lessons that did go wrong, and yet why was he unable to break that cycle for much of his first year of teaching? Now, you know what I'm going to say. As ever, I am ridiculously biased, but this is pure gold. Chris is a thinker, cerebral, as previous podcast guest Will Emney described him. And if any of you have been lucky enough to attend one of his workshops or even follow him on Twitter, you will have seen that for yourself. Chris has an ability to dissect issues, question assumptions and convey complex ideas in ways that even someone like me can understand. There are few people in education that I have learnt more from and I'll tell you what, this interview is no exception. I'll be back at the end of the interview to share what I think is an important point about direct or explicit instruction and Chris has promised to return so I can work my way down the list of other questions I want to ask him. At this rate, we should be done in around 87 hours, with the Bolton box set ready for some binge listening in time for Christmas 2026. If you haven't checked it out already, you may enjoy the research section of my website, which contains links and my takeaways to over 100 papers that have changed my approach to teaching over the last couple of years. You can find that page at mrbartonmaths.com forward slash teachers forward slash research, and there's a link in the podcast notes. 
And the usual plea, if you enjoy what you hear, then please give the podcast a quick rating or review on iTunes. I'm getting closer and closer to the top 10 in the global education charts. There's just some obscure, low-budget affairs such as TED Talks, Tony Robbins and the London School of Economics standing in my way. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Chris Bolton. I really hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. I am absolutely convinced that you will. Oh, and if you're expecting a quick answer to what is your favourite number, think again. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Chris, so we start as ever on the podcast with your math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? I'm going to go for the square root of two. <laughs> nice, okay. And the reason that's my favourite is because, to my, to the best of my knowledge, it's the first irrational number that was ever discovered. That's a really big deal. It's it was a, irrational numbers were originally considered to be exotic, whereas now we know that um, in terms of infinities, there's a greater order of infinity of irrational numbers than there are rationals. So in fact, it is integers and rational numbers that are exotic, which is Deeply counterintuitive. Uh, square root of two also speaks to the Egyptian knowledge of Pythagoras' theorem and having an awareness of it uh, 2,000 years or more before the Pythagoreans came across it. But then it also speaks to the Greeks' secret source, which was proof. So the Egyptians had an, uh, they, they sort of understood the relationship. They knew that that relationship existed, but they never, they never really bothered to prove it. They didn't care about proof they just care about practical applications of mathematics so you get a really interesting delineation there between a really really ancient mathematical thought and classical ancient mathematical thought and then within that i think probably most importantly it speaks to the human story of mathematics and the fear that it engendered um, and to and to, to appreciate that, you need to know a little bit about how classical Greek thinkers actually thought and viewed their world. And for them, the integers were these sort of holy, divine creations created by the gods that, that the whole world, the universe had been constructed out of um, integers and relationships between integers. And so to discover a number that wasn't an integer or related to an integer, I like to imagine for them it's a little like staring into some sort of abyssal <laughs> void and seeing your world fall apart um, in front of you. To the extent, and it's interesting because the, again the Egyptians knew this uh, through Pythagoras' theorem. You've got a right angle triangle, side one, side one. The, um, the hypotenuse is root two, but they and they knew they couldn't they couldn't write down what root two was. They couldn't express it. They didn't care though. <laughs> they just knew it was this thing which if you square it you get two and that was good enough for them the greeks showed that you couldn't you couldn't write down a number you couldn't create it you more or less can't uh, which has other physical real world implications it's almost like a number from which you can't seemingly construct the world anymore how can you construct a table or a bench which is root two meters long you can't um which leads into a wonderfully Possibly apocryphal, possibly completely true. I don't quite know, um, but a wonderful story about I think it's I think it was Hypatius who or Hypatius, um, who was a member of the Greek uh, the Pythagorean Brotherhood, 
um, which had all sworn a sort of blood oath to secrecy over what they discovered. And he's the one who, who let slip the secret. And then this story ends in lots of different ways. And some, um, it ends in him being drowned at sea, uh, falling off a ship in the midst of a storm because, uh, what he had revealed had somehow upset the natural balance of the universe. <laughs> and in others, it ends with him being hunted down by his own brethren and murdered and drowned in the sea that way. So, um, so horrifying was this number to them. So uh, whenever I mean, I've shared this story in various forms to various children that I teach, and then off the back of that, it also said that um, the square root of two, I often describe it to them as being the second most terrifying number in all of the universe. And well, behind, behind what? Exactly, right? <laughs> you tell children that, they automatically want to know what's the most terrifying number. Right. Um, zero. Zero. Because Zero is the destroyer of worlds, it tears the fabric of mathematics to pieces, it destroys logic, it ruins everything. There's a wonderful little demonstration or example you can do of this, which I took from the um, uh, the book uh, Zero, Biography of a Dangerous Idea, which is a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful book. It's very well written as well. It's, it's one of those rare gems where it's, it's just beautifully written. It's easy to read. Um, as fascinating stories about zero's history and one of its point one of the points it makes is you can take the number line multiply it treat it almost like a rubber band and you um you multiply by any number call it four and you've it's like you've stretched out the rubber band all the numbers are four times further apart than they used to be yes but that's okay you can get back to where you started it's all safe you just multiply by a quarter or yes. divide by four and you're back where you were but you take that rubber band and you multiply it by zero and all hell breaks <laughs> loose and everything turns into zero and where did all the numbers go and and your your world has just been has been torn apart flipping out well i'll tell you what we're uh yeah we're pushing the boundaries of what can be considered a speed date here chris but i'm, I'm happy with that answer. <laughs> that's that's fantastic that mate super well question number two then what was your favorite topic in maths as a student yeah apologies for this i probably should have forewarned you that i'm bad at speed <laughs> and, and brevity but i have tried um a favorite topic do you know i i don't think i had one. Oh, um, okay and this is because I was I was good at maths in terms of learning how to pass the exams and and in that sense I was probably I was motivated because it you know it's it's nice being better than yes. everyone in the class being top of the class in a really quantifiable way it's not that the teacher has judged you or your work to be to be better it's look I got everything right and and everyone else didn't that that's great but I didn't understand any of it really um i didn't have much intellectual interest in it despite taking further maths today level um, i didn't see any of the relationships between the concepts i didn't see any of the connections i didn't see much of its applicability and i think despite lots of a stars at gcse and a level this weak understanding meant that i was very nearly kicked out of my university in my first year there flipping heck you, and what did you put that down to, Chris? Was that the way you were taught, or was it just just not of, of interest to you at that age? I think it's it is probably down to the way that I was taught. But in saying that, I need to be very careful because I don't really mean that as a criticism of any of my teachers, especially um, my GCSE teacher who who I thought was brilliant and who gave up enormous amounts of his time. I must have stayed back nearly every single day in the run-up to the GCSE exams. He poured uh, huge amounts of time 
uh, into into me and into my work. And um, and again at A level as well, my teachers were were absolutely fantastic. But but I do perceive a much greater systemic problem. I think up until very recently we haven't had access to, and right now it's it's a, it's a dissemination problem rather than an access problem. We haven't had access to ideas from cognitive science that are fundamental to understanding how people learn. That are uh, fundamental to understanding what understanding is, and then fundamental to being able to map these things out so that we're building um, rich and complex and deep and relational understanding. And there have obviously been um, ideas about how to do this, which have, have been around for several decades now. And I think most of those ideas are probably unsuccessful and not very helpful. Um, but I am optimistic that there are sets of ideas that we could latch onto now that. I hope will be much more successful in the future. Fantastic. Okay, superb. And well, question three to wrap up this, uh, mm. this speed date. If, if you weren't involved in education and, and teaching and teach first, what, what would you do, Chris? Sure, I think I would probably be a management consultant. <laughs> and, and having gone through your back catalogue, I now know that that's a terribly boring response. Oh, no, no, you've, you've hooked me straight <laughs> in here. How, how come? It, it's something that appealed to me ever since I learned about it, which wasn't until the very end of university. And I think it's because at its core, it's a job that involves tremendous amounts of learning yes. about a huge breadth of industries and ways that people work and ways that society works and fits together. And I think quite often as well, the people who join top management consultancies, they tend to be extremely driven, intellectual, curious people who also have a deep love of learning. Yes. Okay, oh, that's any, any particular sector would interest you, or just would you just general? Definitely general, and it's when you start talking about specialisation that I start to lose interest again <laughs> because I I have a broad interest in everything, and if anything, so one of the um the, the scary parts of a successful uh, a successful career in something like management consultant is that when you go in at the the bottom level or even the early management levels, you're usually constantly moving between projects across yes. different sectors, and that appeals a lot. But as soon as you start moving up to this partner level, you tend to be this super specialist person in a sector who knows all the people in it, knows everything that's going on in it. Um, and then I would start to struggle again because what about all the other fascinating stuff that I, yes. I want to know about? Got it. Super. Fantastic. Well, you, you've hinted a little bit of uh, your kind of history of, uh, with mathematics. But so well, well, let's take it from the point. You've done your GCSEs. You've done further maths at A-level. Where do things go from there, Chris? Just, just t talk us through the steps in your career of getting where you are now. Sure. Now, the question the question you had um, went down, I think, said briefly describe the steps. <laughs> and, um, and I'm probably not going to do that, but with, for, for a good reason, because I think a lot of this feeds into how I think about education now and why it's such a driving passion for me. And, and believe me, this is, a, this is a more brief narrative than the one I could tell. Um, so I did, I did go to university. I did very, very narrowly miss being booted out from the University of Warwick in my first year. But I survived and I graduated, master's in physics. And then I went off and lived in Versailles for about a year and a half because I was deeply frustrated that I didn't really learn French at school. And I'd always wanted to learn French since I was eight years old. And I was like, right, I'm going to go learn French. I'm going to work, live in Versailles and work for um, a computer game company called Blizzard who make the massively successful video game World of Warcraft. So I was a game master for World of Warcraft for about a year and a half. Heck, I'd never knew that. Jeez. Yeah, it's, uh, I did that for a while. I learned, I learned a lot about um, a lot of things, in, including perhaps how not to manage big departments but it was um 
But the, the tricky part was I had I had underestimated how difficult shift work would be and how much it would interfere with uh, with what I was trying to do. So I, I left it after a bit. I lived in Paris for a year. I was unemployed and I focused on learning French. And because I was unemployed and I had so much free time, I dedicated a huge amount of it, a huge amount of it again to learning. And I covered, uh, I found lectures and all kinds of things on um, Greek philosophy. I learned about Greek philosophy for the very first time. Socrates, Plato, um, uh, Aristotle, barely even heard of them before then. Um, I learned about the history and the structure of, of music for the first time. About Western history, actually, for the very first time, I did a GCSE in history, but I didn't really learn anything apart from World War One, World War Two. Learned about basic economic theory for the first time in the history of economics, about behavioral economics and game theory, and I was learning about so many, so many things that were so new to me. Um, art was another one in there, and what constantly shocked me was how little I'd really been taught at school. And I'd had this fascinating experience where I'd left college with all of these A's and A stars and I think I left and I was the smartest person in the whole wide world <laughs> and then I, I got to Warwick and I was suddenly so so very far from being even just smart I didn't really know anything um, <laughs> and, and that was difficult and that was at times embarrassing and I struggled uh, dealing with that and I was and then now I've done four years at university and I've learned loads from all of my friends and the people there and now I find I'm running into it again. And again, I'm, I'm 23, 24, 25, and I'm shocked by how much I don't know. And you know, I found the problems I perceived in society that people had been grappling with for thousands of years and that even proposed solutions to. And these are things that I hear people talking about every day. You know, why is the world like this? Why do people do this? And it, it never occurred to me that actually this wasn't a new thought, that these thoughts had been had for, for so many centuries. And yet, despite being... On paper, I suppose, what we could put in inverted commas as a well-educated person, I was confronted yet again with the true extent of my ignorance. And this is partly what led to my, my interest in education. Why, why didn't I know these things? Why did other people know these things? Why didn't I? Um, and why didn't other people know them as well? So um, I moved around a bit. I spent some, I, I returned to England. I spent some time working for a strategy consulting boutique uh, that specialized in the third sector. I spent some time running a bookshop in Santorini. <laughs> I eventually settled in Oxford for quite a, for a few years and I worked for an innovation consultancy while I was there. But also while I was there, I applied to teach first. And um, that's what began um, in about 2010. My, 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 I'd spent a couple of years before that looking into and thinking about education, but this is when I finally had, right, I'm going to go into the classroom, I'm going to do something. And I got to spend time really thinking about that. And um, and, and the same thing happened again. As before, I, I thought I understood the problems with education. And I thought I understood all their potential solutions. You know, I'd seen Ken Robinson. I'd seen Sagata <laughs> Mitra. I knew what was wrong with the system. And it, some of those things bore out, but I, I definitely only had a very small partial picture. And I think I was shocked by many of the issues that I saw. I was shocked that I didn't have to sit an exam to enter the profession. I was yes. I was shocked that I didn't really need to know anything to qualify as a teacher. Nobody had assessed whether or not I knew anything. And again, I was shocked by, by everything that my PGCE didn't teach me when I started to learn about it um, just independently or through through others, what other people told me about. So did what I usually do, started reading, I started listening carefully to, to better minds than mine and, and try to understand what could be done. I um, was overwhelmed by the compulsion to try to 
to keep bettering myself and joining King Solomon Academy was a phenomenal opportunity to do that um, and then I, I constantly wanted to share everything that I learned and to my great surprise found that people wanted to listen and cared so I started a blog joined Twitter went to conferences people started asking me to speak at conferences I've I've now lost count of the number of expert panels I've been asked to join for the for the DFE or the government departments and and, and the, the, those experiences and, and that that upward trend, that, that momentum, made me increasingly fascinated with the prospects for, for large-scale impact. So I, I'd learned an, an enormous amount at King Solomon Academy about what is truly possible. I feel like I stole a glimpse of what a great education system can really look like and, and what it can achieve for our society as well. Um, and so when Teach First launched, it was due to launch its new program this year with its 2017 cohort, which has just kicked off, um, being able to get involved in that. And so I joined them in um, September 2016. That just seemed like the, the perfect next step. Flipping heck. And well, honestly, that is an absolutely fascinating story, Chris. Can, can I ask you, why maths? Why maths teaching whenever it was something that you weren't particularly keen at at oh, school? Yeah. yeah, no, it wasn't supposed to be. I was supposed to become a science teacher. Um, because I was, I was fascinated by science when I, when I was at university and, um, because I thought I'd be a science teacher. So I started looking and I'd learned things at university about this sort of human narrative, this human story of, of science, which I felt I was never really told about at school. It was a bit like we were, we were told, um, here are the scientific facts, but we were never told anything about the pre-existing non-scientific ideas or the pre-existing scientific theories that have been falsified or or the human story about the battle of ideas and <laughs> why people thought in different ways. So I knew a lot of that for science and I was very passionate about it. Um, but part of the reason I ended up teaching maths was because I, I applied to teach first three times before I was successful. So I applied in 2008 originally. Uh, for science and I didn't get it and I applied again in 2009 and I didn't get it flip out um, this is like turning down the Beatles whoever's turned you down for <laughs> teach first year Chris flip um, that is that's very kind of you to say Craig um, but the, and then after the second time a, a friend of mine introduced me to uh, someone she knew who was um, who uh, had just graduated from teach first was a teach first ambassador and she was just this, um, this brilliantly um, ed- ed- just energetic professional solutions focused individual and straight away she said right okay yep yeah okay i see the problem i can see what we can do yep we'll get you in a we'll you go to my school you can see what school looks like for a while we can get you involved in all these these things i'll talk you through what they're really looking for in the assessment center all these different things um and yeah it it turned out i just had different things in, in my head about what what was important in the assessment center i think and and I spent so long talking with her about um, this. She was a maths teacher. She was head of maths now. And also, I'd spent so many years now, obviously, diving into education, TED Talks and videos wherever yes. I could. And invariably, people want to talk about maths. Maths education is a hot topic. And people were really interested in that. And um, and so I, I was increasingly influenced by those ideas. And then also, I, I mean, I had thoroughly expected when I joined Teach First that I was going to leave after two years. Um and go back into a, another management consultancy firm. And I, I'd always intended to do that for maybe two to five years and then rejoin education. So I, I never wanted to leave education. I did always want to come back, but I thought there was a lot that I could learn from, from joining a consultancy for a while. And I thought it would be really beneficial as well, on top of all these other things, if I'd spent two years um, thinking quantitatively, because obviously uh, strong math skills are things that they look for. Yes. So all of this to sort of coalesced to me I was a, I was a bit slow on the fence, but I ended up going for maths, and 
I'm, I'm so glad I did because doing that forced me to look into again this human story and the history of mathematics and and by God all of the things all the things that I said about my attitude towards maths at school couldn't be further from the truth now and it's so far from the truth because I've learned all of those wonderful glorious things that you wish all of your students would learn and I went straight into the classroom thinking I'm gonna I'm gonna teach you all the things that I didn't know about maths and this is gonna be all kinds of different and you're gonna love it and you're gonna have my passion for maths that you have now and straight away instant cognitive lo- overload left right and center nobody's <laughs> learning a thing total disaster and that forced me to, to stop and kick back and and really think about what I was doing and thus began the next five years of my life that's, that's superb and that, that teases up perfectly Chris for, for what I want to ask you next and this is this is often my, my favorite part of the show I'm I'm fascinated by how people plan and how people put lessons together or sequences of lessons so take this however you want whether it be a single lesson a series of lessons any topic you like but if you can just describe in detail your thought process, your planning process, and I'll be annoyingly interrupting your left, right, and oh, centre. But just, do. yeah, but you, yeah, it. just go for it. Tell us how you plan. So I've changed the way that I plan almost constantly across <laughs> the whole five years I was teaching. So what I will do is I'll make one very, very important point very clearly, and then share in detail what I think was the most successful planning that I ever did. Perfect. So. The one probably most important point that can be made. The lesson is the wrong unit of time. <laughs> and I've seen this come up a few times in previous podcasts. And I'm glad that it has. And it can't be re-emphasized enough. Do not plan lessons. The longer the period of time over which planning can take place, the more successful it will be. And we have up to 11 years. So if you could plan from start to finish the whole 11 years, that would probably be the most successful program you could put together. And the shorter, then the less successful I think it's likely to be. And that narrows down to about the the length of lessons about as short as you can plan. So I think if you are still planning lessons and thinking in terms of what shall I teach tomorrow, then you're probably operating at about 5% of your potential. Plucking a number out of the air. I like it. I like it. So... I mean, I say this, I mean, if if ever trainee teachers were listening, I think that's that's a special case where things are a bit different. And that's only because I think once you've been teaching for a few months, certain things become automated. But like when you're driving a car, riding a bike, tying your shoelaces, there are just some things which you don't have to think about quite um, so explicitly and processing working memory. But when you start, you really have to think about, God, what am I going to do when they walk in? As they're walking in, what am I going to do? When they sit down, what am I going to do? What's the first five minutes going to look like? And you yes. do have to think about this in terms of a lesson just to get used to the rhythm of a lesson and starting to automate some things. But once you've got those basics out of the way and you're starting to automate things and you you know, that sort of feeling of I could probably get by in a lesson from start to finish with minimal planning if I needed to, um, just by plucking out things that I've got in long-term memory now. That's the, certainly from that point on what you need to be planning as much time as possible. So I think the most um, successful implementation of this I ever had, and this for me is um, a series of lessons that they were the very last that I taught before I left KSA. And in that sense, this is deeply frustrating for me because I, I feel like they were the closest I ever came to successfully executing Sigrid Engelman's theory of instruction with reasonable fidelity and the outcomes were absolutely extraordinary <laughs> and I don't get to play with that and experiment it with it and push it further anymore um, so I love telling people about it so they can do that in my stead um, 
I think I'd go as far as to say I've never taught anything with this degree of success across my whole five years. So this was with a year nine uh, class with mixed prior attainment. You've got 22, 23 kids in there, and there were four kids who were some of the some of the most successful mathematicians in the whole year group, and there were six pupils who were um, very much towards the bottom end of attainment. They would they would all be in your bottom or second bottom set in a in a, in a school which had sets. Yes. There were at least two or three of them within those six with whom I had had a very very difficult relationship all year long, and that wasn't really their fault. Um, to some extent, it wasn't my fault. It was. I I'd found it. They they weren't being successful, and they weren't being successful because I and therefore they're obviously not going to enjoy the math lessons very much. But they weren't being successful because I was struggling to find a way of teaching them within this setting that meant that they could be successful. And this is the first time um, that I ever really achieved that. And this were the topic was solving simultaneous equations, and we had nine hours across five lessons. So some of those lessons were double periods. The first thing that the first question I'd ask myself is, what is the most difficult question type that I would like every single pupil to be able to solve by the end of this sequence of lessons? My answer to that was a pair of simultaneous equations where both equations need to be changed to get a common coefficient for one of the variables. Yes. And then made some other explicit choices that I was only going to teach solving by elimination and wouldn't introduce substitution yet. And although I haven't explicitly talked about rearrangement in that objective, um, we could have an equation that needs to be rearranged first, for example. It's a kind of an obvious additional step to include perhaps in a lesson where possible, um, because rearranging, that, that would, that's something that you've done previously. So you're just interleaving with an old with an old idea. Yes. But the 100% goal was per simultaneous equations, every single child, common coefficients. Uh, you'd need to change both of them, multiply both of them. So that, so now I've got my end goal, and I'd, I'd write that out as a question as well, a, a question like this, I want them to be able to do this. Then I would say, uh, what? because the other thing that, and, and Daisy made this point, I think, in her podcast, um, that's, that's basically a criterion. And the problem with the criterion is, uh, do we have lots of negative coefficients in there? Do yes. we have uh, decimal coefficients? Like, how difficult is this really? So actually, I, I wrote out the question I wanted them to be able to do um, by the end. And and then from that point, the next question I asked myself was, what are the subcomponents of solving simultaneous equations that need to be taught explicitly? And I mapped out 13 in total. Flipping heck, jeez. I'm not going to go through what they all were because on, a, on an audio podcast, no one will be able to follow. But the first three were all things that had we knew had been taught previously. So I, I'm saying we sometimes because um, I there was another teacher who taught two of the year nine classes and I taught the third and we both followed the same sequence of lessons uh, right. across, the, um, across this period. Um, so the first three were solve one-step equations substitute into x and y and show that uh, the coordinates x, y, so in that form x, y, show that this is a solution to an equation. So you right. have an equation with two unknowns and you can give a coordinate and you can show that that's a solution. So, okay, so these three have been pre-taught. They know them or they did know them. I'm not actually assuming that they do know them and that's yes. important. 
So our lessons are set up so that we have lots of time at the beginning to to introduce recap exercises in different ways. I think there may have been at least five. Um, we'd have the do now. We would have some sort of rapid fire drill. Um, we'd have some sort of different start of activity, something that maybe requires a bit bit more time or a bit more um, thought. Um, we'd have an oral drill usually. Uh, we'd stand up and say the answers to some questions. We'd do some work on um, almost like another starter or recap exercise with mini whiteboards as well. So we had lots of opportunity there to introduce questions based on these topics that they've seen before as well as others. So we can use this both to assess their prior prior recall, really, rather than prior knowledge, yes. was their recall of what they've been taught, and also to address the gaps where they exist so we can address that on the fly. Once we did that, the fourth thing that had been written down was identify when equations are solvable. Sorry, when they are unsolvable. So that as an example, 3y plus 2x is equal to 10. Yes. That is unsolvable. So we wanted pupils to understand that there are solvable, there's a category of equations that are immediately solvable, and there's a category of equations that are not. Right. And all we wanted to do was make sure that they could identify these. So how did I how did I set this up? Um, I tried using what Siegfried Engelman would describe as a correlated feature um, concept. And correlated features, he, he just has a set structure for teaching these. The idea is that you understand the concept by its correlation to another concept. So here, we're looking for the idea of unsolvable. How do we understand that it's unsolvable? By its correlation with the number of unknowns in the equation. Right. So this isn't me saying that there's lots of, that this is the only way of understanding it. I'm sure there's lots of other ways of conceptualizing it. But this is one that I knew, I was, I was certain as an in, that this was going to work, that every single one of them would understand this. Because all they have to do is count how many unknowns there are. Yes. So I can guarantee success even for those six children at the weakest end. Um, and then the structure goes like this. You would you would have a few examples, and you need to have sufficient variation between the examples um, that the, the concept is, what, what Engelman would describe as the universe of the concept is sufficiently mapped out, or um, children can sufficiently generalize from the specific examples that you've shown them. And there's almost a like a pseudo script that you can kind of map out, and um, and it, yeah, I think it just said um, I think it was something like my turn first. Um, this equation can be solved, and then there's a, there's always a follow up question. This is the only sequence in which is the second question every time, and the second question is always the same: How do I know, or how do I know it can be solved? Um, so this equation can be solved. How do I know it can be solved? Because it has only one unknown. This equation can't be solved. How do I know it can't be solved? Because it has more than one unknown. I think it is four or five examples of that. And, and can then, I just can I just check, Chris? This is yes. whole class teaching, is is it? Is is everyone is one to one to one? Just one child giving an answer, or is everyone kind of chanting at the same time? What what's what's this actually look like? I think a lot of Engelman's direct instruction programs are intended for quite small group teaching. So to make to adapt this to a, a larger class, what I decided to do was use a um, call, call and response for the. Um, so so when it so when it becomes um, a question now for the for the children, yes. the initial questions are identical in setup, uh, not not the same equations, but very very similar types. 
and the question is almost identical. Can this equation be solved? And you're just looking for yes or no. And so I would use call and response on three, one, two, three. And it's just, I'm, I'm looking for a sea of yeses or a sea of noes. And obviously the, the downside of that is if you might be able to pick up that somebody has said the wrong thing, but you can't easily identify who has sure, said the wrong thing. Sure. But as a, as a best of all possible worlds, it gives everyone the opportunity to think. It gives everyone the opportunity to get involved. It gives everyone the opportunity to respond with, um, a, a no, actually, sorry. No, I, I ended, I moved, no, this is, this is wrong. I moved, <laughs> I moved to that eventually to speed things up. But initially, to make sure that we're getting it, I used mini whiteboards. Yeah. That's how I did. I used mini whiteboards. And then after that, I would just single out a, a single child to respond to the second question, how do you know? So that they all, and it was cold calling, they all knew that they could be called on. Yes. They were all hearing the response reiterated. And I, I moved gradually from the strongest uh, pupils in the class to the weakest to make sure that they, they could respond to that. And can I, can I ask as well, yeah. just, just to be a pain here, Chris, just going back, this is the fourth skill um, or fourth, fourth concept out of the 13 necessary for simultaneous equations. With the three that they'd have already met before, mm -hmm. um, is it a case that you are literally going through those one at a time, starting on the first one, testing recall or however you're doing it with the, via the do now? Mm -hmm. And is it a case you are not moving on until that one's complete? And if that is the case... Um, what are we doing with the kids who are struggling a little bit and what are we doing with the kids who have who are, have recalled it and are kind of ready to move on a little bit? Yes. I can't remember exactly how each of that, all of that mapped out. What I do know is that we we included those three because I've, I've got my plan up as well. We included those three things in four out of the five lessons. So they were in all four of them. So we kept ah, doing it again and again and again. Um I, I, remembering as best as I can, I think some of the things we um, singled out a bit more separately, uh, sure that X, Y is a solution to the equation. I, I seem to be able to remember spending a bit of time, uh, although I could just be remembering earlier lessons, I'm not entirely sure now, um, but definitely at some point having three or six questions just on that one thing. Right. But otherwise, they were broadly being mixed up in these in these different worksheets. And if if it weren't the case that all of them, so all of them certainly got to the point that they could respond to those questions correctly before we did move on. Um, it may not have been the case that all of them remembered immediately, but then just a quick bit of reteaching, a few more questions, and they usually caught up with that pretty quickly. Um, and these are relatively simple concept and yes. we're keeping the numbers simple so that the weakest aren't having to worry about arithmetic complexity at this point because we're looking for whole class instruction where 100% are successful um, what would have happened if they, they did well yeah we just kept we just kept going until they did I suppose uh, and, and they did so it's hard for me to, to imagine what we have done if if we're an hour in and they're still not getting it I'm, I'm really struggling to imagine that scenario actually arising for, the, for those particular topics um, but I, actually, if I tie that into what happened when I was teaching this concept, um, I, I can speak to that a little bit in a slightly different way. Um, there was there was one girl in this class who, who was in this group that I described, and she and I have had a very, very difficult relationship the whole year long. Um, I would describe her character as quite volatile. Um, she, across the year as well, and she... <sighs> It's one of those situations. There's nothing. There's, there's nothing wrong with her. She's not acting up, or sort of, she, she's somebody who would, would could it could sort of explode and get really upset and storm out of the classroom. <laughs> yes. And these things would happen quite often, not because she's she's anywhere particularly mean or 
or anything wrong with, with her in that way. It's just she isn't understanding anything and she's being forced to come to all these math lessons for an hour a day where she's just made to feel like she's stupid and that's, yes. that's really unfair and it's unkind and that's not nice. Um, and so when I, when I, and my, my mentor, and this is, my mentor, when I was about a month into teaching, maybe it was only even just two weeks in, she sat me down one time and she, she said to me, she told me something that, um, that always stuck with me. She said, Chris, you, you really need to be able to say to them, sit down, shut up, listen to me, and I promise you that you are going to learn this. I promise you that you are going to be successful. And I thought about what she said for a moment. And then when I replied to her, I said, Penny, I don't think I can make that promise. <laughs> and <clears throat> and this was yeah, part of the challenge um, in the early years. But it's, it's a challenge that's followed me throughout the five years. There were there were certain times when I'd go into a, a lesson and I'd be so excited to teach it because I was certain everyone was going to be successful. And there were other times when I just knew they weren't going to be and so a strange thing happened with this girl in this particular lesson where um, I was certain that she was going to get this. I couldn't fathom how she couldn't if she paid attention. Yes. I'd, I, I'd, I'd, I'd structured this so, so clearly it was impossible to misunderstand what was happening. So I, I, and I stood there in front of everyone. I said, look, I, I, didn't, I didn't introduce this as we're learning how to solve simultaneous equations. I think I introduced it as... Um, well, I'm going to teach you a whole bunch of things over the next few lessons, and they're leading up to something really big. And I, I can't quite tell you what that is yet, but <laughs> nice. but, but I just want to, I want to make this promise to you right here and now. If you if you pay attention to absolutely every th- single thing that I say at every step, if you do if you follow all of the directions that I give you, every single one of them, I promise each and every one of you in the classroom, each and every one of you, I guarantee 100% is going to learn this. And um, I have this video, some of these some of these lessons were recorded, so I have it on video, and you can see this moment where I start going through the sequence, and this girl is not paying attention. So she's just looking at her nails or looking at the table in the front corner. And I say to her, um, I, I need your attention, I need you looking this way. And she does this thing where she sort of like looks in my direction, and then just then just her gaze wanders to the other part of the room, <laughs> and then sort of up, and then just her head's back down again. So, no, 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 I'm... I'm I'm serious. I, I can't move forward until you're looking this way. You're going to get this. And then she, she snapped at me. Um, I can't see. Um, I said, okay. Um, the, the middle desk um, had a, we were lucky, the middle desk had a, a, a space free today. And so I said, okay, well, we'll move to that seat there next to, next to the other pupil. And, and she did. She just picked up a chair and moved there without much fuss. <clears throat> And then in that, from that point onwards, she, she gave me 100% of her attention throughout. And <clears throat> not only was she successful with that activity and um, the one that came next, but afterwards, at the end of the lesson, there were only two people in the class who had completed 100% of the work. Um, she was one of them. The other one had been the boy that she was sat next to, who was one of the highest achievers in the, in the school. So the immediate thought might be, well, she's just copied all of his work. Right, but but actually no, because she'd moved back to sit on her own um, when she, when they got into the independent work. She just knew how to do it all, and she just sat there and did it. And because I hadn't prepared the answers in advance, it was the first time I got to to take her sheet and put it on the visualizer and say, right, we're all going to check ourselves against uh, this pupil's work. Uh, and she had everything 
completely correct. And so, I, I, and so, not only was I absolutely correct that she was going to learn it, and she did, but I also know how that situation would have played out in almost any other lesson I taught her that year. And what would have happened is she would have snapped at me, and I would have issued a demerit. You cannot speak to the teachers that way. It's not okay. Um, that's a demerit. You need to be looking this way. I need your attention. I'd have said the words again. And then yes. what would have happened is I would have ignored her. And she would have sort of paid attention for a little bit. And then she would have just ignored me. And then we would have just ignored each other. And the reason that would have happened is because the alternative is I push for this 100% thing. And I say, no, no, I want you looking this way because you're, um, because otherwise you won't learn. But I know and she knows actually really she's not learning this. She's not understanding. She's not getting it. And she's just going to be frustrated again. She's going to end up with a second demerit, then a third demerit. Now she's been removed from the classroom. Now her parents are being brought in yes. to talk about how she's been such a bad girl. And actually, all that's happened is I have failed to teach her correctly. And hence the ignoring. It says, it says we just ignore. So I didn't issue the demerit. And um, I think there's a very, very reasonable debate to be had there as to whether or not I should have done. I probably should have done regardless because... The, the culture is very much that speaking to teachers that way isn't appropriate and and, and I should have done really. Um, but the important part of the story is just my absolute conviction that she was going to learn this if she paid attention and therefore holding to her, her to account for something else, holding to her, her to account for a higher standard, move here, pay attention, you are going to learn this because I've definitely structured this in a way that you're going to understand. And I feel like that's what every single lesson should feel like for every single teacher and every single pupil as well, every day. Flipping heck. And I'm, I'm assuming this is, this is a kind of wider issue, but you're obviously a big advocate of, of explicit instruction. Would, would you go so far as to say that you, this is almost the defining reason why? Because it allows you to have that structure have that control over the lesson that you've carefully considered and it's not so much out of your hands as can happen whenever some form of minimally guided instruction takes place absolutely and i'd often refer to secret engelman not necessarily because i think um his direct instruction capital d capital i and you had greg ashman on talking about the different kinds of ways that people use the term direct instruction and explicit instruction. Not because his way is the only way or even necessarily always the best way or the appropriate way, but certainly because I think he's done more thinking about this than anyone I've ever encountered. It is just extraordinary, the the mind that this person has and the way that he's thought about the experience of the person doing the learning. This applies uh, to adults as well as as well as children, as well as people in schools. And he also has fantastic examples, and unfortunately on a, on a radio podcast I can't really <laughs> demonstrate, but he has fantastic examples that shows how misconceptions form quite naturally as a function of the, the teaching. And I often think it's important to refer to the teaching more so than the teacher, because it's not a bit like when I was talking back to my, to my math teachers, it's not that they are. It's not that people are doing things wrong or people are doing are doing things that are unprofessional. I think there are sets of ideas that have gone ignored and that we continue to ignore that mean it's not yet possible for teachers without those ideas to go into a classroom and make those promises and guarantee that every child will learn. I thought it was fascinating that Dylan Williams said when you spoke with him that we we expect children to learn and we know from experience now that that 
that, that very often isn't the case. We, we almost keep repeating the same lessons, expecting something yes. different each time. Uh, why do we? And we need to accept that they're not going to learn everything 100% of the time. But I think even now, I think we can do better than that. I think that we can get so much closer to 100% than most people do believe. And not not all the time, not for all things. There are complexities, there are subtleties and nuances in this. But I almost don't want to have the conversation about the subtleties and the nuances and the complexities until we have the foundation solid, rock solid. Um, there's a the, the, there's a couple of. I mean, it, it might be. It might be a good moment if I'm talking about Engelman right now. It might be a good moment. And then we can get on to concept number five. Um, sure. It might be. <laughs> and then we probably won't, we won't go into all 13. Sure. But um, it, it, just to get a sense of where Engelman comes from, because I find his attitude, I find his philosophy, his ideology compelling as well. Um, he, th- There's one book that he published in the, the 90s, uh, in which was definitely during his, what I'm going to call his angry phase, <laughs> entitled War, in capital letters, red text, exclamation mark, <laughs> War Against the School's Academic Child Abuse. Flipping heck, jeez. He was very angry. And, <laughs> and there are a number of things that he says in this which I find uh, compelling. One of them, he says, when students do not succeed in school, Academic Kant holds that it is the child who has failed, never the system or the instructional program or the teacher. (laughs) Now, again, I mean, I would say rather than teacher, let's talk about the teaching. Uh, So let's depersonalize this. Um, but, but, But he's so committed to the idea that every child can succeed. He, he won't let you put children into boxes. These are the ones who are good at maths. These are the ones who are um, right-brained, good, creative thinkers. He's, he's not okay with that. It's everybody can learn everything. Another one was, um, I, have, I have never seen a kid with an IQ of over 80 that could not be taught to read in a year. And I've worked with thousands of them. <laughs> I've never seen a kid who could not be taught arith- arithmetic and language skills. Um, you know, he's caveating slightly with an IQ of over 80, whether he means that literally they've done IQ tests or, I mean, I sometimes talk about, um, because there are these obvious exceptions, I sometimes talk about um, um, genuine, genuine or serious cognitive impediment might be another way of writing right. it. Um, uh, but, but he's broadly saying that barring those, <clears throat> those what, like 1%, 2% exceptions, everybody else can learn this. And we just need to figure out a, a program that guarantees it for them, um, and then his, his final one, which I think just speaks to his to his extraordinary anger, um, but it's, it's it's brilliantly put. The system panders and plays games because it is thoroughly incompetent at the top. <laughs> the decision makers have a dual character of being naive and arrogant. They are naive because they have never taught successfully or even seen it done. (laughs) They are arrogant because they install practices that are totally untried and subject thousands of children to certain failure. Um, And there's just, you leave the anger to one side for a moment. I feel like there is a certain degree of, there's something within what he says that I find humbling. Yes. Um, they are naive because they've never taught successfully or even seen it done. I 
have never considered myself to be a particularly uh, great teacher in terms of what I think is possible. In terms of what I think is being done, I think I did all right. But in terms of what I believe to be possible, I always felt I was maybe 20% there at best. I was going to say 10, 15, maybe I got a bit further towards the end. But there was... um, But I think... And, and, and this is important because if your if your entire system is operating at twenty percent of what of what its potential is, then you you have almost no opportunity to your expectations are, are going to be necessarily low, but they're going to be about as high as they can be compared to if you're comparing yourself if you're norm referencing if you're comparing yourself to everyone else you're going to think you're doing a great job, so yes. you're going to think you're brilliant. Um, even if, even if every single child in your GCSE class got A stars, um, you occasionally get one of these every year, I think, usually selective private schools, but regardless, you're going to think that you've done a fantastic job. I mean, that, that's like the best result you can hope for, right? And yet, I, I think about myself and I think, well, I got an A star and I didn't really understand any of it. <laughs> so, so what's beyond that? What is beyond A star? How far can we take this and how do we get there? And, and Engelman's one of um, one of the few people I've found who just relentlessly, relentlessly has very genuine, real belief in children and in people's capacity to learn all things, and then has dedicated his entire life to relentlessly trying to understand how to to structure instructional sequences that guarantee people will learn. And, and then when when that's your goal you have this incredible efficiency in the system and suddenly the quantity that is possible to learn in the same chunk of time is ramped up dramatically because people are just learning quickly, like more and more things, more and more things successfully. Um, when I think about the conversation I've had with heads of maths, when they're thinking about adopting um, the sort of mathematics curriculum we had at KSA where maybe you only teach... Um, you only teach arithmetic in the first year. You focus on arithmetic, times tables, um, addition, subtraction, and then little things that might relate to that. So little bits of algebra or geometry that speak to being yes. able to interleave those skills. Um, things that I think Danny talked about uh, that they now do at Michaela as well. Um, actually, even before I joined KSA, my, my mentor, who, who's very wise, 15 years experience just taught her so much. Uh, she, she, had, she had a real sort of a canny ability to see to see great ways of teaching people. And she very seriously considered changing our year seven curriculum to only focus on this element of mathematics to really get the the number skills right. But in the end, she didn't make that change. And I think the reason she didn't make that change is obviously if you're head of department, you're accountable. It's a big change. And if it goes wrong, and uh, that, that's a lot resting on your shoulders. Um, and I think within this, the fear is how on earth are we going to fit everything else into year eight, nine, 10, 11, if all we've done for an entire year is teach them number skills? Sure. But people think this way because they haven't seen the efficiencies involved in a system in which children are actually not just learning in the moment, if we think perform- performance versus learning, but are retaining that knowledge over time and can recall it and can use it in every single lesson going forwards. When you have a curriculum where you try to cover all the topics at a shallow level, uh, you spend a week or two on them ac- across the whole year, um, they forget everything. 
And so you spend the next year reteaching everything, and they forget yes. all that. And so you spend the, and you have uh, what Heather Vern uh, very brilliantly referred to. She's a history teacher, but it still applies. In an article for Schools Week, I think, what we can call the mud slinging curriculum. You just try to sort of sling <laughs> mud at the wall and hope that some of it sort of sticks because you don't really know what you're doing and you don't really know what works. And so when you think about um, changing a curriculum, so you only do number skills in year one, you, you filter it through your pre-existing uh, paradigm and you think, but they're going to forget all of it anyway. Oh, Christ. And then we'll just like, then what will we do? We'll have to yes. teach all of all of number and all of everything else. That would be terrible. And so people don't make the leap. And... <clears throat> And it's this, and so again, it's, it's this idea of, you know, naive because they've just never taught successfully or even seen it done. We need these, we need really bold pioneers now, I think, sometimes to take on these, uh, to take on these risks and to try these things out and to show that, to show what success can look like because otherwise we're measuring ourselves against a yardstick that's too, that's too small. Can I can I ask Chris um, how much how much does culture and and behaviour play into this? And the reason I ask is I know I know Bruno um, Bruno Reddy is is very much that the culture is one of the things that needs to be in place first. Mm-hmm. And when I when I listen to you describe this sequence of lessons, this uh, this this sequence of skills, these thirteen skills leading up to simultaneous <laughs> equations, which is which is fascinating. Um, my mind is drawn to the fact that it's very much teacher led. Mm-hmm. And you, you've when you gave the example of the the young girl who wasn't listening to you, you have, you've said, I am not moving on until you're listening and, and you've, you've moved her to a different desk and so on. I think often, uh, well, what I, what I want to know is, were you able to do that because of the way KSA's culture and behavioural system was set up? And I'm just thinking in contrast to a school where perhaps the behaviour routines are not in place, you've got a teacher listening to this who thinks, I'd love to do that, but I know my students cannot maintain that level of attention for that amount of time. And if I constantly have to stop because kids are not looking or talking, mm. we're literally going to get nowhere. And I think that's why sometimes it's tempting to say, right, I'm going to do minimal teacher input, maybe a couple of minutes at the start, let's get things started. And then I can wander around dealing one-on-one with kids mm-hmm. who are perhaps misbehaving and so on. <laughs> so yeah, how much does culture and behavior need to be in place in order for this model to work? I think there are a few different ways of answering that question. The first did working at, is it important? And uh, did working at KSA make that easier for me? The answer is yes to both of them. If I zoom out now from the level of the classroom and I think about the level of the school, then I usually argue that there are three, three key features, three biggest levers for school improvement, uh, other than operational management, which is extremely important. Uh, the first one, and these are in priority order. The first one is um, discipline and culture and ethos related ideas the second one is then curriculum the third is then pedagogy and this is because if you're right if that first thing isn't in place if you don't have um if you don't have either a a culture which promotes self-discipline or is prepared to impose external discipline where it's required then you will have then you are very likely to step into uh, just chaos a situation in which no children can learn anything really um, so that certainly makes it easier. But then there are, there are other parts to what you said, um, which I think are also important. The first thing I would say is that the situation you described, this, this idea of almost like a little bit of teacher input, then I'll just yeah. leave them to and I'll go around table to table. You're describing me when I was in my first few months, possibly even my whole first year in teaching. And you're describing the vast majority of um, trainee teachers that I've worked with. 
that this is almost always how it happens. And <clears throat> I even um, worked with a trainee just this week where he said to me, I think I'm more comfortable with tuition. And, yes. I, and I said to him, you are. You're more comfortable with, whole group, with, with small group tuition because you haven't learned yet how to how to hold a whole class's attention and how to manage that environment and how to make sure that what you're explaining is is comprehensible to all of them. <clears throat> so of course you are. You're, you're, you're scared to be in front of all of them. You're scared to have them all looking at you and have the attention on you. And so you want to get out of the way as quickly as possible so you can start going around and doing little bits of small group tuition. But the problem with that model is 2%, 1% of what they could learn, if anything, if they're learning anything at all, that is. Quite often... Um, You'll get lots of children who won't, will spend the whole lesson just having a chat about something else. They'll stumble their way through two or three questions maybe. They might not answer them correctly. They won't pay much attention to you at the beginning. It's exhausting for you as a teacher. It'll be very noisy. It won't be an effective working environment. People won't have space to think. They'll be disturbed by the people around them. Even the ones who want to think will have others constantly wanting to engage them in some other sort of conversation. Um, so there's, there's not even really any point discussing a pedagogical approach if we're saying that that's what the classroom environment is because what's your alternative <laughs> to, to, do, to doing it this way you alter the alternative you're describing is just a classroom in which people aren't learning yes but just to play devil's advocate a little bit because again I've, I've 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 been in this situation myself and, and trying to um, explain this model which which i think I'm, I'm fully on board with can i just ask where does the differentiation come in chris and d does it matter because mm. that's always the counter argument right if you can get kids working on their own with less teacher mm -hmm. input they can be working on different things whereas if you are taking kids through this this process really yes. carefully really considerably every child almost by definition is working on the same thing at the mm -hmm. same pace so does differentiation matter well we can there's another question that you asked which was also important and i can i can deal with them both the <laughs> previous question you asked was how do you hold children's attention for that long it's yes. similar and it is related to the question the assumption that children can't hold their attention for that long. This is where the, the instructional sequence becomes really important. And what's actually surprising is, um, is how, is both how little teacher talk can be involved and how little time needs to be spent on, um, on watching what the teacher is doing before the children are then getting stuck in. And then in terms of what you're asking them to do, the way that these questions are sequenced and set up, they provide fascinating uh, cognitive activities to think about, but, but that have been set up in a way that even the weakest in the class will be successful. And yet they're also fascinating even to the strongest in the class. Um, this is where I probably need to show you pictures of things. I can, I can try to describe a little bit. Um, so if I just sort of recap my thoughts, because I think there was something I was, oh, sorry. Um, when I talk about how little teach, teacher talk is involved, I need to be very careful what I mean with that. I am certainly not somebody who who advocates for this view that if you were talking, the children are not listening, which is <laughs> something that Daisy reported, having been told by her university tutor when she she writes about this in Seven Myths, I think, um, which is just an appalling thing to say to a new teacher, and, and that's certainly not true. And, and so the and also so therefore the idea of reducing teacher talk I don't think is helpful either. What I much prefer is the idea of I take from Douglas Moore of economy of language. And the way that I would phrase this is, don't take twenty minutes. No, sorry, don't take two minutes to explain something that you can explain with only twenty seconds. Right. But if you need twenty minutes 
take it. Yes. So, so it's about having the right amount, just the right amount of words required, as few as possible, to explain the idea. And if you were really going to do something for 20 minutes, then you're probably going to have to get into narrative structure to, to make that work, amongst other things. Um, so so, so in, in terms of the initial explanation, we're talking, it's about a minute long. I spent about a minute going through those examples, maybe a minute and a half, that's all. And then the the way that the, the questions were set up, they start off with things like 3y plus 2x equals 10, but that can very quickly become um, p cubed plus 4z is equal to negative t. Can this be solved? Yes or no? So just things that look superficially look very different. So the surface structure is very different each time. They look very different. But actually what you're asking them to do is really just count the number of no, to cover the number of letters, and um, you, you can base your response on that. So it's something that every single child can still respond to, um, and you can you can set these things up um, very carefully, so that as you're moving, you're progress. There's a sense of progression, so it's not you're not leaping from one idea to the next. You're very slowly progressing from something that is like what they were told and what they were shown in the examples to things that increasingly look different. So there's only a and small thought each time. And on a practical level, Chris, is this on a worksheet or is this projected on the board? And are you going through, are kids answering these questions one at a time and then being told the answer? Or have they got, say, five minutes to get through as many as possible and then go through the answers? It does depend. If So, so the way um, the way Engelman sets up his instructional sequences, which, again, I tried to mirror for, for this piece of work, he has what he calls an initial instruction sequence followed by an initial assessment sequence followed by an expansion sequence. And the initial assessment sequence, so the initial instruction is the teacher examples. Yes. And that's just them paying attention to me, and you don't use any more examples than are necessary. Again, economy is, is the key word there. Um, and it should usually be quite short and sharp, a minute or two, usually. Sometimes I even got it down to about 15 seconds. That was all, and then it was over there. <laughs> And then the, the initial uh, assessment sequence, you've got, again, just a few questions that look almost identical to the ones that you did. So you're directly testing what they just saw you do. It's almost it's almost as a, a test of, of paying attention. And then the expansion sequence is where you start getting very, very, very interesting things happening. How are they responding to it? This would So for something like this, it would all be... Um, but again, this gets interesting. Um, I did all of this on the whiteboard. And... Uh, and then they would respond mostly on many whiteboards. Occasionally, I'd have call and response. Occasionally, I'd do call calling. So you mix it up. If we've gone through the whole uh, the whole lot of uh, gone through an expansion sequence as well, then we might get into a worksheet and some independent practice and, and do things uh, that way as well. Um, but we've gone through so much work where we're hopefully guaranteeing that all the, the pupils can, can do everything that's going to be on that worksheet. And the reason the I, I emphasize the whiteboard wherever possible Um Engelman's very big on something called continuous conversion. Continuous conversion is the idea of showing pupils exactly what is changing live. So rather than going from one equation to another equation and rubbing it out and then writing up another equation, yes. what you might do is say have 3y plus 2x is equal to 10. Uh, and I'm not reading this out because they can see it themselves, but if that's what was on the board, yes. here's an equation. Can this equation be solved uh, on many whiteboards? No. Pick on a child. How do you know? 
because it's got more than one unknown. Thank you. And then I let them watch me rub out the X. Can this equation be solved? Uh, yes. How do you know? Because it's only got one unknown. So they're, they're allowed to see precisely what is changing between what we had before and what's happened, what's coming next. And this is starting to get a bit into variation theory, um, just these tiny changes and thinking about how that changes your previous response. I haven't talked about differentiation yet. I can do that if you want. Yeah, that would be that. And the reason, the, the exact reason I ask here, Chris, is just um, you, just yesterday I was delivering some training for, for Harris Federation. And it was the question that I got asked more than anything else when I was describing how I would explicitly teach something. Two or three people said to me, but where's the differentiation? If I did this, I would get torn apart <coughs> because every single child is working on the exact same thing. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I'd be very interested what, what your response is to that. Who are they being torn apart by? Uh, so by uh, Ofsted was in the conversation, but okay. anybody anybody observing, uh, or if anyone saw the lesson plan, the first thing they would say is, "Well, where's your differentiation?" And well, this is this is something I experience a lot. It's, sure. it's often one of the main questions if I'm working with trainee teachers or whatever. They'll mm -hmm. say, "I need to differentiate. How can I differentiate?" Okay, in that case, then this conversation needs to happen at two levels. Uh, one is a, a systemic problem, and what you have, what you people who are talking in those terms are not thinking about pupils. They're not thinking about pupils learning. They're not thinking about what really needs to happen to guarantee that 100% of the pupils in the classroom are definitely learning. It sounds like what they're signaling through that language is that they're thinking about the the things to which the boxes that they need to tick against which they'll be held accountable. And if this is within school, then, um, then that's a, uh, that's a that's a leadership problem, and that's something that is very. I couldn't I couldn't tell somebody what to do in those situations. That's between them and their leadership team. All I can do is explain um, what I think is going to lead to success and and what the word differentiation means to me. And and that's what's important is is the meaning sure. and what we're trying to get down to. If they're talking about Ofsted, I'm not entirely sure that's true anymore. Um, yes, I, I don't think it is true. So. I would just tell them that I don't think that's true. I, I need to double check the handbook. I've not looked at that in a very long time, but my suspicion is that it's no longer true. Um, but then you've got the other level, which is um, if we assume that we're talking about differentiation because uh, people want to say, but I've got kids who are at very different levels in my classroom, so I need to I don't know, cater to that. or Exactly, yes. Fine, okay, so we can talk about that. And that's a pedagogical uh, conversation. That's an, a conversation about instruction, and that's a really interesting one. And the first thing I would say is, remember where we started here. This is a year nine mixed attainment class. I've got one boy in this classroom who already knows how to solve simultaneous equations. He has been taught it by a tutor. He's one of the highest, he's one of the, <laughs> he's one of the four highest attaining in the year group, and he has been taught it by a private tutor. He knows how to do it. And the other thing I would say is, he didn't realize that we were learning how to solve simultaneous equations until halfway through the final lesson. <laughs> and he stopped to say to me, so I, just before I told them, because I actually I never, I never used the words at all, I think in the end I, eventually I said, um, this equation can't be solved, these two equations can be solved together, and I'm going to show you how. And then I would bring in the, the technical language that we call this, we call these simultaneous equations. Because you actually need to understand, because then we didn't actually get this far, but if you want to use the language of simultaneous equations, that in, that in and of itself is a concept. You need to be able to describe when two equations are simultaneous and when they yes. are not. Um, so we would just, we, we wanted them to be able to go through the process. We don't necessarily need them to know the language yet. Um, so you go halfway through and suddenly he asked me, is that what we're learning? And he didn't realize because 
I was teaching him so many, so so much of of how these so so many of these different little the minutiae of these ideas and these little concepts, um, which his tutor had obviously overlooked. His tutor would have just said. Solving simultaneous equations is when you have two equations like this, and we go through the steps like this, and then you get your solutions at the end. Yes. Um, so, so this is a situation where I, I had the most extreme kind of uh, variation in the classroom that you can expect, and yet it was successful for all of them, despite the fact they were all doing the same thing. So in terms of dif- differentiation more broadly, um, I've always, ever since I started teaching, felt deeply uncomfortable with things like all most uh, all yes. Uh, most sum or even um, what's the other one Um, must should could because all of those I feel are saying some of you will do really well and some of you won't and that's okay Mm. so I've always felt that if we are going to talk about differentiation um, it should be in terms of what just just what do we need to do to guarantee that every single child meets the same bar that every single child gets there. And sometimes the way you do that is differentiating by time. You give them more of your time within a lesson or you give them or you structure a school uh, so that certain classes have more time. Um, and you, you just make choices about some subjects that they're going to study and others that they won't. Um, and in this particular lesson, it, it, it wasn't a problem because the questions that I was asking, they were challenging and it, or perhaps the more, the better way of putting it is they're interesting, whether you're at the top of that class or whether you're at the bottom of that class, and all of you were able to access it. And again, this speaks to how the um, how the questions are sequenced. Um, and I can probably give a better example of that by going on to concept number five. Fantastic. And can, can I can I ask as well, Chris? Because just related to this, I, obviously I'm a little bit obsessed with with cognitive load theory at the moment. How, yes. how does this all how does this all tie in with the expertise reversal effect? Because if we take the example of this child, is would he not be better served? So I'm talking about the child who'd already uh, who already knew how to solve simultaneous equations. Would he not be better served just working through? problems as opposed to what essentially are kind of worked examples and more structured way of instruction that, that you're doing for the rest of the class i think honestly i don't know the answer to that question i think we seem to know that the expertise reversal effect is a real thing and that there is a novice expert continuum but we also know that it's domain dependent yes but what i'm not sure is what constitutes a domain is mathematics a domain or is geometry a domain within mathematics that you could be an expert in geometry without being an expert in calculus, for example? Mm, yeah. um, is, or, and when, when do those things break down? Do, do, do they eventually break down? And is there breaking down what expertise really is? And it, it is mathematics that is the domain. And actually, you need to know a substantial amount about mathematics before you get there. Well, can I, can I say, just to paint this scenario, imagine, so when you plan this sequence of lessons, you had a, a kind of question in mind at the end of the nine hours that you wanted the students to be able to do Mm. if this particular child could do that question at the start and you had evidence that he could do it would you still do this sequence of lessons with with that child i would because it was clear that i i knew that he wasn't going to know all of the extra things that we did during the lessons right and that's why he never felt like he wasn't learning anything he was learning a lot right and Within, although that might be the that that's the sort of hundred percent bar, 
within worksheets, I can, for example, include equations where you need to rearrange first. So you're using, um, you're almost just sort of creating things that are more difficult. They have more steps in. If you look at the different dimensions along which you can make things more difficult by mm. introducing um, coefficients which are decimals or fractions or have additional terms or have more than two equations, all these different things, um, that might be, might describe as not core. They're not, they're not the core concepts. They are just more difficult to respond yes. to then you could easily have a, a variety of these different things in there. Certainly the idea of, I mean, and these, I, I wouldn't say that the kinds of things I've just described there uh, represent what we might consider to be uh, what sometimes people describe as rich mathematical thinking or, or deep problem solving or any of that. I don't think that any things I just described there um, would fit into that category. But I'm still, I'm still continuing to think about how do we, and or even to what extent can we apply some of these same principles that I'm describing about 100% of the kids being successful, feeling that they're successful? How can we apply those to other parts of, of the things that we want them to learn and the things that we want to teach them? And at the moment, I've, I've very recently started splitting this up almost into two domains uh, or two groups. And one group is stuff that can be explicitly taught and the other group is stuff that cannot be explicitly taught um, and so things like problem solving I suspect probably fit into that um, so but, but you asked the question would he not have been better working through some problems I think the two ways I can answer it I think initially my suspicion is probably not he was learning lots insofar as I could determine he was learning a lot and there's a lot of new content in there for him but also there's a, there's a point at which we, we do have to accept that our universal education system is a mass education system. Yes. It is a mass production system. And that runs directly up against most of our sensibilities. I don't really like that. If you ask me my ut utopian vision of, of schooling, it would definitely be every single child uh, working, choosing what they want to learn, <clears throat> working on things that fascinate them thinking about things independently, reading about things, going to friends and to teachers, asking them for to help, engaging them in academic discourse when when it suited them. But I just don't think that that reality will ever manifest. I don't think I think that's more fantasy than it is reality, sadly. And ultimately it, it's so it's it's something that we as a very it's very luxuriant to be able to offer universal education freely to your entire populace. We can talk about it in terms of a commitment or a duty to a, to a, to a citizen body, but it is also luxuriant that we have sufficient wealth to be able to do this. We're very, very lucky to be able to do it. And if we're going to do it, I think we have um, a real duty to ensure that children are, are learning and growing as much as they can throughout their school years and that they come out ready for just... <laughs> being passionate about learning in general, knowing a lot about the world, being able to situate themselves in, in time and space and nature within the, within their own culture, well, within their own culture and within the culture within which they live as well and are going to, to take part as a citizen. Um, being able to <clears throat> be proactive, powerful members of a democratic society. I think these are all very important things. And I think part of the way that we, we get there is ensuring that everybody learns as much that they're able to of this phenomenal, incredible, 
huge, enormous body of knowledge, body of wisdom that's been collected over thousands of years. Um, something which I recently read, uh, sort of journalist, sort of blogger journalist Tim Urban, who is a phenomenal writer, described as the human colossus. Um, this is another tangent, but he has a great way of putting it. He a great way of putting it. He describes um, imagining a situation where an alien comes to visit a solar system, and there are three planets, and all of them are identical to Earth, but one of them is identical to Earth six million years ago. One of them looks like Earth fifty thousand years ago. And one of them looks like Earth in uh, twenty seventeen. And he says, if he goes to the Earth six million years ago, he'd hang out for a bit. Um, he'd, he'd from from the, from space he'd see uh, bits of life starting to wander around. He'd get bored pretty quickly. He'd move on to the next planet. On this one, it's fifty thousand years ago. It's broadly the same. Some of the animals have started standing upright and walking around. There's some specks of fire here and there. It, <laughs> not a lot going on. He goes to um, the Earth in twenty in twenty seventeen. And suddenly it has to, whoa, just like dodge out the way of a satellite and that this planet is a hive of activity and vast ways of it have been concreted over with gigantic structures and the, 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 the whole planet is surrounded by a swarm of satellites and all kinds of fascinating things are happening. And he goes back home and he reports in that two of the planets, no signs of intelligent life. The third planet, yeah, there's real potential there. <laughs> and that seems like a legitimate report. But then Tim Urban's point is, but if he said that, he's got it wrong. Because actually, the analysis should be, first planet, no intelligent life. But planets two and three have exactly the same amount of intelligent life on them. And the way he describes this is, if you took a human baby from that second planet and you swapped it with a human baby from the third planet in 2017, they would both grow up as fully functional, fully functioning members of their, of their respective societies, despite the fact that they're 50,000 years apart. In other words, broadly speaking, the humans from 50,000 years ago were just as intelligent as we are. Why do we appear manifestly more intelligent? Because of what he refers to as the human colossus, the fact that 50,000 years ago we developed speech, Speech enabled us to start to teach each other things and to uh, pass down our individual knowledge to the next generation. But it was a very, very slow way of passing on knowledge, and lots of it was lost. And then you get the invention of writing. Nearly, 50, nearly a full 50,000 years later, you get the invention of writing, and that allows us to um, store more knowledge for much, much longer. And then you get the printing press, which allows uh, the knowledge to be mass-produced and for more people to have access to the knowledge. And then, and, and so on and so forth into the current age where we've got the internet and all these other things. And so, and, and this links in with the um, Hitchhiker's Guide anecdote, if you've ever heard of it, where uh, I forgot the name of the protagonist, but he finds himself crash-landed on a planet with um, a sort of primitive um, but human-like species. And he thinks, great, great, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach everyone. I'm going to rule this planet. I'm going to teach them all about um, science and technology and computers and cars and airplanes and space travel. And this is going to be amazing. And I'm just going to rule everything. And it'll be great. And then he very, very quickly realizes, I don't know how any of those things work. I, I don't know how electricity works. I don't know what to... And he concludes, the only thing I can actually do is make a sandwich. <laughs> and he becomes the king of making sandwiches, and that's it. 
<laughs> so why do we seem as intelligent as we are? Only because, as Isaac Newton said, we very much stand on the shoulders of giants, what Tim Urban calls the human colossus. And I think some of us in society are deeply privileged to have access to some of what the human colossus offers us, and others are deprived of it. And it's that iniquity that I think we need to close down. So if we sort of come full circle and back to this child in the classroom, would he be better off solving problems? Um, even if, even if, in some small way he would be, I would probably still teach the same lesson because it is a mass system and we need to eventually deal with, the, come to terms with the fact that we have to deal in probabilities. And for me, the, the, way, the way to direct those probabilities is what can, what can I do that is going to lead to the most probable outcome of 100% of children learning um, as much stuff as possible? And if he knew everything, absolutely everything that I was going to teach in those lessons, then um, that wouldn't be ideal, and I might look for some sort of solution. I had a situation like that with a girl I taught who was a, a, an actual genius in my placement school. <laughs> in, um, she was in year eight. She could have sat the GCSE exam and got an A-star there and then. But she was also, she had a phenomenal ability to filter out everything going on around her. And I just, I just got her a laptop. I found loads of, loads of lectures on advanced mathematics and just gave them to her to, to watch. And then okay, and she typed up notes and occasionally we, we would talk about these things and she just learned incredible amounts and got really excited about mathematics. Um, so maybe I'd do something like that if it was that kind of situation. But Can, can I ask Chris as well, just because I'm just thinking of the questions that, that I've been asked before with this, just on a real kind of mundane practical level here. You mentioned for, for this child who um, had solved simultaneous equations before, you would perhaps introduce extra complexity within the uh, examples that you gave. So yep. perhaps we'll have some fractional solutions or negative solutions. Well, just on a practical level, we'll, how do you cope with the fact that perhaps every child's not going to be able to answer those. And in fact, it doesn't actually matter that every child's not going to be able to answer those because they're not going to um, impair the, the kind of development of the, the, the skill that they need to, to bring everything together to solve the, the ultimate goal, which is the simultaneous equation. So what happens when... Do other children access these questions? Do you kind of hold them in reserve and just give them, give them to certain students? What happens on a practical level with those extra complexities? I wouldn't include them in the whole class instruction. I would include them in a worksheet. Right. And I would, it would be the same worksheet for everybody. And if, and, and then if you've got children who are sort of whizzing through the, the early ones and they get onto those ones, um, that's great for them. And if you've got other children who, and that feeds into that idea of overlearning as well. And as a yes. beyond, um, and also interleaving. So bringing back things that you've learned previously to it. And for the others, um, hopefully there's lots of stuff in there that they can immediately be successful with. And if these things, I mean, I would hope, I would still hope that they, if you've got the instructional sequence right, that they would actually be able to, to have a go at those. But if we're talking non-calculator here, then, okay, there's a bit of additional arithmetic complexity. If what is making those two children different is a variation in the working memory capacity, then it is just inevitably going to take them longer to process the numbers. Yes. And so fine, maybe they don't get through as much, but it would be nice if they, if they, I, I think in an ideal world, I would still like to have that same expectation of them that they, they yes. try and they work through it and they're just working through it at a slower pace. And are they, um, what are you doing, again, just purely practically with, with the answers here? Are you going through the answers to these partic this particular worksheet? Are you projecting it up on the board? How are you dealing with um, if students have got things wrong? 
My preferred solution is to provide them with the answers so that they can check for themselves. Yep. This is, becomes increasingly easy when you are dealing with more increasingly complex or multi-step problems like this because you can you can give them the final solution without giving them the process that takes you from start to finish, for example. Um, when you are dealing with something which is a single step, I mean, if it were, if you were practicing times tables in, in a primary school, for example, it's tricky to give them all the answers, I suppose, because, yeah, they could you can get children who would just copy the answers across. Yeah. But then part of me would still just like to because it's it is if you can get the culture right at least it is easier uh, for, but it's not just easier for you it's it's easier for for them it's yes. it's nice that you get to keep checking whether or not i have this this right or wrong and um and stretching yourself that way um, i always liked having the opportunity to check the answers from textbooks when i was in school because i wanted to know how i got this right and if i had it wrong then i want to try to figure out why i got it wrong and i suppose where it get that's where it gets tricky is uh, when you get um, you can't figure out why you've got it wrong and there's only limited teacher resource, then what do you do? Um, ideally, you would just move on to the next one and ask those questions at the end. But what tends to happen is you get so frustrated by the fact you don't know why this <laughs> has gone wrong um, that sometimes you just get locked onto it. Fantastic, Chris. Right, what about concept number five then? Okay, we finally got here. <laughs> so we had three at the beginning, uh, which we knew they'd already been taught, and we put them in the beginning of the lessons for four out of five lessons and recapped, made sure they could still do it. Concept number four, uh, identifying when equations are, ins- are unsolvable, which because uh, that's the in. Eventually, the whole point of this exercise is to reveal that with a bit of additional information, those equations can be solved. Right. And then... Part five, which was one of my absolute favorites, and I've shared the the actual sequence for this in a few different um, few different conferences now. I said that number four I treated as a correlated feature concept. Number five is what Engelman describes as a transformation, and this one has taken took me so long to get my head around, and I think. I I think I have I think I've sort of understood it at least I've understood it to some degree. So with number five, we wanted pupils just to be able to add and subtract two or more equations. And this this was a bit of a revelation for me in, in two ways. First was was how I taught it, and this is the example where um, I put a single pair of equations on the board. I put three boxes underneath them as if to say this is where the answer is going to go and then I had a little bit of preamble which I had pre-scripted in order to ensure economy of language and all I said to them was in primary school you were taught how to add together numbers when you joined us in year seven we taught you how to add together variables unknowns letters I'm now going to teach you how to add together entire equations my turn first. And then in complete silence, I just wrote 7x, 10y, and 25 in the boxes underneath the two equations, which is what the, the sums were. Right. And then I stood to one side, paused for a few seconds, and I decided to now narrate over the top of what was on the board, because 5x plus 2x is 7x, 4y plus 6y is 7y, 20 plus 5 is 25. 
Um, and when Greg Ashwin was on the was was speaking with you, I think there were two points that he made which are very important. One was the not reading out what is on the board, because if you do that, what it, what you are saying when we say things or when we listen to things being said, we process that in the part of working memory called the phonological loop. And when we read, we also process that in the phonological loop. It's like when you when you read some text and you hear your sort of inner voice reading the text. Yes. Same part of working memory doing that. So if you've got two different things you're trying to process out at the same time, you, they, they clash and you get overload straight away. And this applies to equations, right? When we read equations, we read them as 5x plus 4y is equal to 20. Um, so I didn't read over them. But then Greg did say you can separate out these things in time and you won't get the same overload. So they'd had time to read what was on the board. They'd had a few seconds to read what I'd written. And then I spoke over what was on the board. Um, And that was it. The whole thing, including the preamble, took less than a minute. Um, I then wiped the board clean, wrote up two new equations, which had equally simple numbers. And said, your turn on your mini whiteboards, add these two equations together. And then we went through this process of... um, Continuous conversion. So I, I rubbed out the the positive sign for one of the coefficients and changed it to a negative, and then and then just asked how would this change your answer, and so they changed their their answers appropriately. Um, I did the same. I changed one of the numbers from a five to a two. Now this meant that we we now had positive five y and negative five y. So this was going to lead to elimination, but this elimination was incidental. It was just a part of the sequence. And if you think about how simultaneous equations are normally taught, you start right at the beginning just trying to eliminate a variable. Yes. Here, we were teaching addition and subtraction of equations. Elimination was incidental and just happened as a part of it. So when I was talking about differentiation and how this might be a good example of it, all of them are having to think about what's changing each time. This is interesting for all of them. And every single one was successful. What was interesting with these is I was getting a mix of responses. I got some zero Ys and I got some blank spaces and then I could hold up the boards and have a conversation about why both are correct and which might be more desirable than the other. But it was, it was just brilliant seeing <clears throat> again those, the kids who are usually, who are the weakest in the, in the room still being successful because the numbers were really easy and I'd, I taught the concept so carefully and so clearly. Uh, we, we had to go at subtracting equations. Subtracting equations was fine, but then we started adding a lot of negative coefficients and subtracting lots of negatives. I, I dropped my success rate down to about 50%. So we went back to addition. But um, I, I swapped the order of the variables round. So x, x plus y and underneath y plus x. And about 50% of the room uh, didn't spot that. Mm-hmm. And so wrote the right sort of the right numbers underneath, but not really the right numbers. And but w- then a wonderful thing happened when I pointed out the mistake. It was like this glorious moment of oh, not that. <laughs> As in they they knew they understood what was wrong immediately, and and the, and now this is the kind of mistake where the, they'll never make that again. They'll they'll take care in future. Um, <clears throat> and then one of the the next equation in the next set, I I just rubbed out the um, the x term, so one of the equations just had a y. Um, and then on the equation above, I rubbed out the y. So there was just 10x equals 12 and 2y equals 8. Add them together. Um, on the next one, I put up a, a pair of equations that didn't have 
any unknowns in them. Five five plus ten is fifteen, and two plus eight is ten. <laughs> Add those together. That was great. The fact that this isn't a thing that you do with algebra. This isn't a thing that you do with with letters necessarily. It's um it's just a feature of equations. I mean we, and again one could argue that there's there's a deeper understanding here which is not being conveyed. The fact that um the left and right are literally expressing the same things. Therefore, when you when you add when you add um, these two equations together, you're literally adding the same two things on the left-hand side as you are on the right-hand side. So, of course, that's still equal. Um, but but then you, it's it's just about identifying all these different bits and teaching them separately rather than trying to teach them all at once and hoping, like Heather Fern says, just hoping bits of it will stick. Yes. You're really intentional about it. I want all of it to be learned. I'm going to separate it all out one bit at a time Make sure they get it, and then we'll move on. And, and it kept going. We, I, I then, up until now, I'd set up all the equations for them. This time, I put them in a line, like this equation and this equation, add them together. So they had to do the column addition, line up the columns themselves. We then chucked in an equation that didn't have any x's and y's. It was a and b. What are you going to do now? You've got 10x and plus 5y on the left, and 2a plus 3b. What do you do? <laughs> Um, we took the same two equations and added a 3x to the right-hand side of one of them. What are you going to do? And again, the success rate was still always consistently 80 to 100%. Um, and then the last one, we started doing like one of those little um, addition column problems you can get. Instead of, you know, add them together, what do you get? Uh, there were blanks in all three equations, and they had to do a bit of addition. And they had to figure it out. You know, what yes. do I do? 5x plus blank is equal to 12x. Um, and it, it was just another little bit of variation. So the variation was constant, and it was constantly interesting, and it was constantly something new. For, for every, but it was, it was structured in such a way that every single child would not only find it interesting, but every single child was able to, to see what to do next. Can, can I ask Chris at this stage, and I don't know if I'm going to articulate this clearly, because it's not even clear in my head, so God knows how this is going to come out. Mm-hmm. But what if I'm right here, you're varying the difficulty of the concept itself. So your, your concept that mm-hmm. you're teaching these kids is adding or subtracting equations. I, what I believe you're not varying, and I wonder if you're not doing it for the reason I think you're not, is you're not, for example, including, um, say, fractional coefficients or something like that. Because I, I, I believe that there's there's a danger in, in interleaving, that if interleaving comes in and it impairs the chance of a student understanding a new concept, mm-hmm. then it's potentially dangerous. I think interleaving should come in after a concept's secure. And I think sometimes I see dangers here where people vary things, but they vary the wrong things, if that makes sense. They, they, sure. they vary things that aren't to do with the actual concept that you're trying to convey at that moment. And actually, if a child, for example, has a trouble with fractions, then that's actually going to make them think, right, I don't understand the the actual concept that's being taught here, which isn't anything to do with fractions. It's addition or subtraction of equations. Does that make sense? It makes sense, but I'm not sure it's quite correct. And I'll explain why I think that. And the concept, I would say, is being held constant. Just add two equations. So right. at every single step, what what has hopefully been thoroughly communicated is you are adding this bit to that bit. Um, and and if we look at how it's been varied, actually, I have introduced things that are different in the way that you described, but just perhaps not as obvious. So we had at one point 
a positive 5y add negative 2y. So you're having to add negative numbers now, whereas previously you didn't. So if they weren't comfortable with negatives, that would become problematic. And it did become problematic when I started throwing in negatives all over the place and, and subtraction as well. Um, when it came to the, the swapping down around the order, um, I guess that was just retesting the fact that you're not adding the column. You, it's testing that old idea of you are adding, you are collecting like terms. You are adding like terms and yes. making sure that that was understood. Um, where I put in the blanks, it, it, yes, it's recognizing that there's sort of a zero there. Um, and when I started adding A and B, there was an element of understanding that um, you, know, you can't add 10x and 2a, but you can write out 10x plus 2a. Yes. Um, so form an expression that way. Um, and I, I would have, I would have been happy to put in some fractions and some things like that as well if I had more time and. And this is why this is why I say planning a sequence of lessons is so important. I can happily leave them out of the in, initial instruction or even the the first expansion sequence, and bring them in later, and test them out later. But again, the I almost say that the biggest thing in in terms of the variation and controlling variation is how much is varying from the last question to the next question. Yes. Um, so I could have taken two, a pair of these at some point, um, maybe even uh, a very a very simple one, um, and left everything the same, but changed my coefficients of x to something like two sevenths plus three sevenths. I kept it very simple to begin with, but now well, there's fractions. But if something goes wrong at that point, Chris, if it becomes clear that your students aren't comfortable with fractions. What happens then? Because then you've got a decision to make, right? Because do do we then put the lesson on hold that we're, we're dealing with here to sort out these fractions? Or do we say to the students, all right, actually, I'm going to come back to this at a later date. It's not crucial for what I'm trying to convey here that you are able to understand fractions. So I'm going to actually just carry on. We'll park that for a bit and come back to it. Because I, I think that's often the danger, right? You, when people aren't, and I'm not saying that you're you're not being careful with with your examples, but sometimes when stu when, when problems emerge that perhaps aren't uh, that the, the teacher hasn't predicted will emerge, I think then you've got you've got a difficulty whether you deal with them head on there and then in the lesson or you park them and deal with them later. So just just hypothetically, if your students had had problems with fractions, there, what what would you have done? Well, we don't, I don't have to answer this hypothetically because I did run into this problem when I started trying to teach the subtract equations. But in particular, um, where, we, where we were subtracting negatives. So I had one in the sequence which was something like negative 10x plus 5y is equal to 12. Right. And negative 3x plus 5y is equal to 8. And I asked them to subtract that. So they, I was asking them to take negative 10 and subtract negative three. Yes. And I was very much, like I said, my success rate was only 50% now. I was losing about the, the bottom half of the class. But I did recognize that I was losing them, not because they hadn't understood what we were trying to do, but because they were struggling. They, they, were, they were putting in like the classic um, negative number mistakes. Yes. Uh, in terms of their answers. So I knew that the problem was negative arithmetic. This isn't a lesson with on negative arithmetic. Exactly. I, exactly. Exactly. So, so I moved on. So I switched back to positives. I, sorry, I switched back to addition, and and I 
started doing different things with those instead. And I, I broadly um, stayed clear of the negative numbers uh, for the rest of that lesson now. But I have also put a flag in the sand that, in my mind, mental flag, these kids still have a problem with uh, processing um, some negative arithmetic in their minds. Got it. Okay. No, that, that makes perfect sense. Thank you. Um, and I think there's one last thing worth saying about the sequence um, before wrapping it up. And that was concept number six. And the reason this one's interesting is because remember, concept four was identify when equations are unsolvable. Yes. E.g. 3y plus 2x equals 10. Concept six was identify when equations have an infinity of solutions. E.g. 3y plus 2x is equal to 10. Flipping heck. And and then we went to okay, concept seven was find some solutions to an equation that has infinite solutions. So uh, being able to identify when an equation has an infinity of solutions is very straightforward. It, it directly correlates with concept number four. But recognizing what we mean by an infinity of solutions is a bit tougher. And so part of our way of trying to deal with that, at least this case, in this time for a bit of a worse, was to think, well, if they can find several solutions to an equation that has an infinity of them, then they will have some understanding of, of what it means for there to be infinite solutions. Got it. And can I ask as, as well, Chris, with this? So we're up to, say, um, six six concepts that have been covered, six or seven here. Mm-hmm. Um, are you constantly revisiting the prior concepts as and when they've been taught? So you, you've, you've taught five of them. Let's just say hypothetically it's now the start of the next lesson or whatever. Is it a quick recap of uh, a mixture of those five before we move on to concept six? And how does that actually happen? Yes. So... What I the way that I mapped this out was to have a, a ta- if you have to imagine a table, and this is something that I think I said recently I really want to write up because I've understood how Engelman puts it together even better now. But at this stage we had a table and I've got five columns: lesson one, lesson two, lesson three, lesson four, lesson five. Yeah. And then you have to imagine it has thirteen rows. Right. And in lesson one, and those thirteen rows represent each of the different concepts we're going to include. And so in lesson one, we've said, right, we're covering these first three that we'll recap, and then we're going to look at identifying unsolvable equations, and then we're going to look at adding and subtracting equations. Lesson two then has just a tick against all of those things to to, to imply that we're going to recap this in some way. But then also we're going on to this next idea, um, infinite solutions, and find some of those solutions. And then the next lesson has still a tick against all the... Um, the first recap three, we're no longer going to recap identifying equations that are unsolvable. We are going to recap adding and subtracting, but we're also going to focus on deciding when to um, add or subtract in order to eliminate one of the variables, something they've seen happen for two lessons now. Like We want to make this happen deliberately. Um, Recap, identify infinite solutions, and then we also introduced infinite solution, identifying infinite solutions along a graph. So we started introducing the graph stuff. And it carries on like this. We, we just identify for each lesson, what are we recapping? How long are we spending on it? What is the new content? Got it. Fantastic. And my final question, again, this is playing devil's advocate a little bit here. Um, you said at the, at the start that this was possibly your most successful sequence of lessons that, that you've ever, ever taught. Um, how do you know that, Chris? Um, and again, this going back to the distinction between learning and performance, how could you be sure that the kids had actually learned this at the end of the day? Well, I don't think we necessarily need to distinguish between learning and performance in this way. The way that I, the way that I frame this, 
um, I frame it as getting it and keeping it. And we can know we, we can know by the end of a lesson whether or not kids have got it. And maybe they haven't. And if they haven't, that's that's not a successful lesson. Well, uh, a lesson on its own can only, I think, fulfill the function of making sure that they've gotten it. <clears throat> and it can contribute to the enterprise of keeping it, which obviously is something that requires a lot of long-term structure. So when I say it was the most successful, what I mean is I, I taught solving simultaneous equations to, again, year nine mixed ability two years prior to this, and I taught it to at KSA, and I taught it to various groups in my placement school. And I've obviously taught lots of other lessons to lots of um, children, both in sets and streams and mixed ability. And this is the only time when I've taken something that is is a relatively concept, complex concept. It's probably one of the most complex uh, things to do in uh, the GC, up to the GCSE curriculum. And I've done it in probably the most challenging setting, which is this mixed attainment uh, group. And I've seen 100% of the children be successful. So 100% of the children have got it. And the the lowest, so the, the, there was another girl in that group who, so the, the, there were two boys in this group who are part of that six that I described. Yep. And when I finally put all of this together for them for the very first time, and I introduced this idea of um, you know, this equation, so I started with this equation, no, sorry, I asked them, can this equation be solved? No. Okay. So I go, like, call and response, can it be solved? No, it can't. Great. And then I wrote up another one, and I said, these two equations can be solved together. I'm going to show you how. I went through the whole thing from top to bottom, took me about a minute and a half. I did the whole thing in absolute silence. I left it all up on the board for a little while. I then I then sort of asked the question, have I explained that clearly enough? And in KSA, you'll have heard about the uh, the clicks. Yes. I got, I, got, I got a sea of clicks from the room. <laughs> and then and then I, I had only two questions. Um, and the questions were from two of the, two of the boys who were within the six. And the first one said... Um, uh, I can't remember what the, the first one said, actually. He um, he asked a question, and then I think I asked him, what do you think? And then he looked, no, he, he, I think he asked, where did something, he asked something, I just asked, basically he answered it himself very quickly. Or I think, no, maybe, I think, in his case, I think I told him whatever the answer was, and he, so he just sat there pausing for a while, and then he just kind of, like, raised his head, nodded his head, and went, yeah, Okay, I see that. And then the other one um, told me that he he wanted he, he thought he understood, but he just wanted to be one hundred and one percent sure. <laughs> and he asked where um, where I'd taken this y from. Sorry, this this number three from that, I, which is y is three that I'd substituted into the other equation. I said, well, you said you thought you knew, so you tell me where you think it's come from. And he said, I think you've taken it from over there. And I said, yeah, I've taken it from over there. And he just went, okay, thank you. And that was that. <laughs> and then the, the other case was, um, and, you know, and I said, you know, there was this, the first girl who completed everything for the first time ever. Yes. Um, just extraordinary. And then there was another girl who was in that group. And um, when it came to the independent practice with these equations from start to finish, she was still struggling a little bit. But 
the conversation I had with her was the most productive conversation I've had with her all year, <laughs> which is probably to say I've never had a productive conversation with her all year. <laughs> um, and, and this is one of the things that I, I could feel horrendously guilty about. I, I try not to because it's simply, I, ju I just literally don't know. No one's ever showed me how to teach in a way that means she will be successful. Um, but this seemed to finally get there. So she was still struggling a little bit. Um, but we, we talked through the examples and she was following along and she, there was lots of positive affirmation that I was getting from her and then she was trying them on her own and she, and she, and she was getting it. So, so, so in terms of getting it, they were all there. Um, this was towards the end of the year. It was the end of the summer. Did they come back in September still being able to do it? I thoroughly expect that they did not. <laughs> uh, but now we're getting to Bjork's new theory of disuse. And what you'll probably find with that group is we'd have a, a varying degree of storage strength for, for those procedural memories and for those conceptual memories. And some of them will have come back and, broadly speaking, would be able to do it still. And some of them will need a little bit of a hint and then they'll, then they'll remember. And then the weaker the storage strength, the more and more information you'd have to give them before they remember. And I suppose the key question is, if you show them again from start to finish, um, does do they finally recognize, can they recognize, if not recall, what it is that you're doing, yes or no? And if the answer is no, they got it all, <laughs> and they can't even follow it, then there was probably practically zero storage strength there. I would be surprised if that were the case, even for some of the weakest... Um, not terribly surprised, but a little bit surprised, just because we we were so careful. There was so much repetition built into these five lessons. I would like to believe that they, a few weeks later, would or a couple of months later, would still at least recognise what they were being shown. Um, but it's possible that they wouldn't. And this is why long-term, careful, uh, strategic planning is so absolutely important. Dylan William actually, and you noted this when you interviewed him, he did say um, that he thought cognitive load theory was the, the single most important theory that or the single most important thing for every teacher to learn. Um, and I replied saying I disagreed and that it was only the second most important thing for everyone to learn because I think that Bjork's new theory of disuse has to trump it just because I think we are I think I think that we are viscerally aware, for the most part, when pupils do and don't get it in the moment, in the lesson. We know when they haven't understood here and now, but we are terrible at recognizing the fact that they're going to forget everything so quickly, and then structuring our curricula and, uh, in order to account for that and in order to build storage strength. So the reason I think Bjork's is actually the more important theory to be aware of is because I think it speaks to it speaks to one of our blind spots. That's fantastic, Chris, that. And that has teed us up perfectly for when you return for part two and we can dig deeper into that. Um, but I'd just like to ask you one more question, if that's all of right, course. Just, just to conclude this. And that's just to end on a downer, as I always like to do. Um, <laughs> I wonder if you could talk us through a time when a lesson hasn't gone to plan, Chris. And crucially, what, what did you learn from it? So much, Craig. <laughs> so much. Um, I So I first read about... Uh, cognitive load theory and the importance of explicit instruction more or less around Christmas in my first year of teaching. So I'm four months into teaching. It it completely changed how I thought about the classroom um, and how I thought about classroom teaching. And I'll, I'll read out, I used to write, um, I used to write out these reflections as you expected to do. And I'll read out one of the, part of one of the reflections that I wrote following some of the things I was reading. 
everything I thought was wrong. <laughs> I've, been, I've been expecting far too much of my pupils and have been encouraged by the successes of a minority at the top of each class. In attempting to directly teach relational understanding, I have been attempting to teach expertise. I have ignored the least able in the tenuous hope that I'd find some future solution and unwittingly communicated the idea that it's their fault that they're not learning because they are too stupid. Look, <laughs> these other guys get it. Why can't you? are the words they probably heard, even if I never spoke, nor even thought them. So in future, I need to focus on solving problems, not building understanding. I need to ensure there's a period of direct instruction from me, which tells them exactly what to do and how to do it. All exposition from me needs to be focused on making it as easy to remember as possible. That means starting with concrete examples, ignoring specialist language until later, minimizing abstraction until later, and designing lessons and concepts around narratives, as well as creating mnemonic devices. Understanding will come to them naturally if I provide a sufficient variety of problems over time and deliberately point out the links between what we're covering now and what we've covered in the past so that's brilliant i love that that is absolutely brilliant you have to sort of forgive the somewhat obtuse thinking <laughs> and, and language that is demonstrated in places there i was only four months in i think i think a lot of the a lot of the intent hasn't necessarily changed over the over these years but it's 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 been deeply refined in a lot of ways i would change some of my language in certain ways i'm not sure if i describe it as solving problems for example i'm not necessarily out sure i'd use the language not building understanding i think i think at the time what i was trying to do is i i, I thought oh my god trigonometry the unit circle i never understood how the <laughs> unit circle worked and where these things came from and this is fantastic so i'd go in and you know, I'm not going to just teach you how to use sine and cos and um, tan to find lengths. I'm going to show you how to derive them from the unit circle. <laughs> and it would just all completely go to pot. It, it was terrible. And so this is kind of what I meant. And I, I still hinted that at the end. I mean, I said understanding will come to them naturally. And I think some of that is probably still true. But I think there's there's also things that we can do very, very explicitly to ensure that understanding has deepened. Um, but... I, the reason I wanted to share that is because you ask for a lesson that went wrong. Imagine what I've just said and the, the, the bold claims I've just made. And yet, actually, for most of the rest of my first year, I didn't do any of that. <laughs> I still kept um, asking questions like, who knows how to solve this? What do you think? Um, I still, I, I, I dove into the standards units and, and pulled out their card sorts and I, I do all kinds of activities with them. I kept doing all of these things, despite the fact that I'd explicitly said I wasn't going to. And I think this is, is fundamentally important in a couple of ways in terms of teacher development. Um, one of them is, um, it's, it's sort of not enough to, it's not enough just to, to even have a shift in mindset or to say you're going to do things. Practice is really important. You need to practice doing these things. Otherwise, you get into a classroom and you just do what you would have done anyway. And the other is the need to replace 
an old idea with if, if you're going to try to change what you're doing and you're going to try to change your habits you very much have to replace the old idea with a new idea and i didn't i still didn't really know uh what to do and i think um so you could easily read what i just said there and imagine that everything i'm doing now is is a lecture and that's all I'm doing for the end of the year. But instead, like I say, I'm, I'm doing all these different activities and I'm asking these these pretty bad questions because I didn't know how to teach. So I, I said I was going to use concrete examples, but I don't have any to use. I said I was going to um, carefully use periods of direct instruction and take responsibility for teaching children things, but I didn't know how to. And so I retreated to the only thing I, I could do, which is, well, what do you guys think? Who knows how to solve this? Now, that changes a bit at the start of my second year, because at the start of my second year, I've had the whole of the summer to gather my thoughts. And I had taught, because of the way our curriculum was structured, I taught nearly all of our topics at least once. So I felt like I was much more ahead of the game. So I, I rallied myself and I got ready to give direct instruction, a real go. And in my second week, um, I taught a lesson about finding the area of a circle to my year 10 class, who were the top set. And that's, but that's kind of, that's what my school was like. In, in, in my school, our top set year 10s didn't know how to find the area <laughs> of a circle. And, <clears throat> and so I started and I thought it, and I thought a little bit like I described actually, what do they need to be able to do? And I thought, well, they need to be able to find the area of a circle a semicircle, a quarter circle, and a sector. And so then in the lesson, I explained to them how to find all of these areas. I must have spent a good 20 minutes or so explaining all of this and showing them how to find all these different areas. I have, to this day, no recollection of what the children were doing while I was talking. <laughs> and... And at the core of this was the idea of find the area of a circle, find the radius, square it, times it by pi. Dead simple. Find the radius, square it, times it by pi. If it's a semicircle, divide by two. Find the radius, square it, times it by pi. At the end, I asked, of course, does anyone have any questions? <laughs> I got a couple of them. Sir, what's pi again? <laughs> Next question. Sir, what's square it mean? <laughs> and you could just picture I, I just my, my just utter I, I didn't know what to do in yeah. that moment I don't I mean I probably just sort of explained again but you can see where this lesson was going it was a total disaster <laughs> um, I, everyone was bored I was bored I was bored of talking the whole thing was, was, was terrible so, so what did I learn from this well <laughs> I think I would say that I, uh, I stress tested the concept of explicit instruction to an extreme. I took it to an extreme and I got to see where this very simplistic idea of what explicit instruction might look like doesn't work and why it's not a good idea. And so I took it away and I, I knew I just had to redo the lesson. I mean, nobody got anything from that. So I went in with um, a very different set of ideas. And the next day, um, I decided to focus much more carefully on what, th what I needed to tell them what they needed from me specifically and then what was conceivably within their ability to deduce from that point onwards. And I concluded that I only needed to teach them how to find the area of a circle and that is all. They need me to tell them that. So I focused everything on that. Um, 
I spent much less time on it, and this time I, I had them, I had them sort of going through an exercise with me. Type in these buttons into your calculator. Do it now. And then I would run around the classroom and look at every single pupil's calculator <laughs> to make sure that it was displaying the right number. Press the next number. Press the next buttons. Do it now. And I'd run around again. And I got to this point where I was absolutely certain that everybody could now find the area of a circle. And then I'd gone through a whole bunch of old exam papers, pulled out every single um, question on circles that I could, um, printed them out separately. I wrote the answers on the back of... Um, back of the sheet so that the kids could check them. I arranged them in order of what I thought was difficulty from earliest to, from easiest to most difficult. And I kind of just said, over to you now. Um, it's up to you. Select which questions you want to do and where you go. And the empty soul got about the seats, ran over there, caused a bit of commotion because there were too many of them at once. And <laughs> picked up some sheets. It, it was a lovely, absolutely wonderful group of children to teach. It's, I'm not suggesting that this was the, the best that they could have, <laughs> the most learning that could have taken place, but it, it went okay, and um, they, you know, they got the sheets and they started working through them, and um, and then there was this there was this wonderful moment where um, I caught um, my, my my attention had been had been grabbed because um, I caught two of the girls jumping in the air and high fiving each other, and I realised that what had just happened is they'd picked up what I considered to be the easiest question in the bunch, which was calculate the area of this semicircle and the radius is marked. So it's literally just pi r squared divided by two. Uh, but these were two of the, the these two girls had um, some of the lowest self-esteem in the group. And what I realised had happened is they just checked the answer and realised that they'd gotten it right. <laughs> and I'm thinking through the, the thought process there, and they, uh, and this to me speaks a little bit to what to what a problem is and what problem solving is. There were there were pupils in that group who knew how to find the area of a semicircle. No, no big deal. They could do that. These two pupils didn't know that, but they were told how to find the area of a semi of a circle, and they were left to figure out how to find the area of a semicircle for themselves. Now that's really easy to do. It's a very small logical leap. Granted, if you're if you're dealing with if you if I think if I'm doing this properly, or if you're dealing with much younger children, then um, you might want to show them. Um, you, you do something to draw the connection between dividing by two arithmetically and halving a, a geometric shape first. Sure. But you no, know, they already had that, and 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 so they were left alone to make this connection. It was a small connection. It it was one that was within their reach. Much like all those different problems that I that I talked about um, when we're adding equations. So, I mean, I learned a couple of things from this. I, I learned that. Um, you know, explicit instruction and direct instruction, they do not mean you just start telling children everything. Yes. There's still judicious choices that have to be made. And, it, and this varies from subject to subject, incidentally. It's different from mathematics to English and history. Um, and that speaks to the, the, the ratio and the proportion of um, concept types that we each try to teach are, are different. And that's the reason why that happens, I think. Um, but also I learned something about the, the importance of... of um, of, of like problem solving, as it were, um, even if it's what I might just call a micro problem, sort of big, rich, complex, low floor, high ceiling problem, or a big investigation, just some just cognitive work, just satisfying, successful, cognitive work, um, and 
I think the the lesson I described with the adding the equations um, that was probably almost like the apotheosis of of what was at this point that, that kind of germ of an idea. Um, where there I, I, I did a few things and got a few things right by chance. Three years later, I was trying very carefully to engineer that same experience that those two girls had for everybody in the class almost all of the time that they were in the in the classroom. So there you go. I don't let you. I'm not going to let you end on a on a low. <laughs> That's very, yeah, very very inspiring, that Chris. That's brilliant. Well, Thank you, Craig. L- l- listen, mate. That has been amazing that that's two hours of you describing your planning process and all it's all it's making me think is genuinely i can't wait for part two Uh, i've just got so many more things to ask you but that's for another day thanks so much for your time mate i've literally enjoyed every minute of that and i can't wait to speak to you again soon thank you craig me too thank you for having me thank you for having me on So there you have it. There was my interview with Chris Bolton. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. I flipping loved it. And I'll tell you why. It's because nothing makes me happier than listening to teachers describe how they plan their lessons. Because for me, planning is this—it's the single most important thing we as teachers do. Of course, the actual delivery of the lessons important. Of course, the relationships that we have with our students is important. But without that plan, everything else falls apart. So listening to Chris dissect for two hours exactly how he plans his lessons... It just blew my mind. I thought it was amazing. So in terms of a takeaway, there's just two things I want to focus on that that really caught my attention from listening to Chris. The first was the point that, that Chris made and Danny Quinn made it, and that's that the lesson is the wrong unit of time to be thinking about when we're putting a plan together. And I've been guilty of this for much of my career. Um, At the start, when I was an NQT and I was just bombarded by the the workload that that just hits you in your first few years of teaching it was very much right let's get through tuesday now survive that it's half past three look at me timetable what have i got tomorrow right let's start planning tomorrow's lessons get through thursday right what have i got tomorrow let's plan friday's lessons and then you're doing it in a very segmented way you're looking at lessons isolated isolated from the sequence of learning now as i got better at managing my time i would then plan things by week so what i would love doing is well not love but flipping heck getting up on a sunday morning um, and planning out my lessons for the week now that was a bit better because um almost by definition you will be planning longer sequences of lessons so i may see my see my year nines three or four times in that coming week so i can plan a sequence of three or four lessons and even then i was finding it easier it was a lot quicker for me to plan three lessons together than it would have been those three lessons in isolation and there was a more kind of coherent structure to them and yet still it was a little bit segmented still I was focusing on the on the individual lessons and not really seeing the the kind of continuation and the links between them and now when I plan it is sequences of lessons and I think I think Chris kind of really hit the nail on the head here uh, with it because it, it means if you start with where you want the kids to get to not at the end of the lesson but at the end of the sequence of lessons then you can work back and ask yourself right what do they need to do to be able to get to that stage and look Chris took a topic simultaneous equations and bro- bro- broke it down into 13 concepts 
But then noticed there was something very interesting about what Chris said. He didn't just plan a continuous stream that covered all those 13 concepts. Do you remember when he was talking about essentially laying it down on a table and he had 13 rows um, and he had his, say, his nine hours of, of lessons going along in columns? So he's still thinking in terms of the unit of the lesson, but because he's thought about the sequence, because he's thought about the 13 concepts that are involved, he can say, right, I'm going to try and cover concepts one, two, and three in lesson one, but then I'm going to make a note in lesson two I'm bringing in concept four but I'm going to revisit concepts one and two and then all right in lesson three I'm going to make sure I revisit concepts four and one for example and then I'm going to introduce concept five and this allows for interleaving and for me interleaving and spacing and revisiting things is the absolute key the absolute key to learning because it respects how human memory works it takes advantage of the testing effect. If you listen to the Bjork interview that I, I did last episode, this retrieval actually changes long-term memory. It improves it. And I think it's only when you plan a sequence of lessons as opposed to individual lessons can you really build in this interleaving. Whether it be interleaving of concepts that are required to understand this new thing, as Chris was saying in simultaneous equations, or bringing in prior concepts such as fractions, decimals, negative numbers, and so on. But I think it's only when you plan sequences of lessons and then take that sequence, take the concepts that comprise it and build them in, sort them out into your individual lessons, can you interleave in space successfully. So I thought that was fascinating. And also, the, the last thing I'll say on this is it just makes me realize how dangerous observations are. Because almost by definition, if you are being observed, and everyone does this, you focus on the lesson. You focus on that lesson. You f and even, even worse, if you're being observed for a chunk of a lesson, say 20 minutes, you focus on that chunk. And there's an inherent, implicit need to demonstrate some kind of progress, make that explicit, especially, as often is the case, you've got a non-subject specialist observing your lesson. And that's why observations that are just kind of general, generic observations, somebody comes in and tries to figure out what's going on, are dangerous, dangerous, dangerous things. I really like what Danny Quinn said, um, I think it was in the first uh, interview I did with her, about observations at Michaela, how they have a definite goal in mind. It's not just a generic observation, it may be observing how you question students, or how you um, respond to behaviour, or or the routines that you have when kids sit down. I think observations for that are good, but observations trying to judge progress and trying to judge learning, I'm not a fan of. And that, that kind of speaks to me that we need to move away from the lesson and certainly move away from the chunk of a lesson and start thinking about sequences. Anyway, second thing I wanted to talk about was this whole thing about direct and explicit instruction. Now, over the last ooh, probably 12 months that I've been becoming a little bit obsessed with this, I've started to introduce it into the workshops I've been running with teachers, whether they be experienced teachers, trainee teachers, and so on, um, as I've been building it into my own practice. And I'm noticing something that keeps coming back to me here. And it's teachers say, brilliant, I love this because this is what I always used to do, this is chalk and talk, I always knew this was best, this is me as a teacher talking, the kids listening and then the kids cracking on with something and I think there's a bit of a danger with this because for me direct or explicit instruction is not chalk and talk, it certainly is teacher led instruction, there's no doubt about that 
but there is so much more to it. So for me, some key aspects of good explicit instruction, firstly are the planning, and we've heard that with Chris here, breaking it down into small steps. Notice how Chris mentioned scripting his responses, scripting the explanations he was gonna give to keep it concise, focusing on the language. Planning examples. I am flipping obsessed with examples these days. You heard that when I interviewed Daisy Christodoulou, and I'm going to be digging more into that with Chris. I think examples, the choice of examples that we go through with our kids and the questions that we then give our kids to do, I think are the key to teaching. So that is absolutely crucial when it comes to effective direct or explicit instruction. Then we've got modeling. Modeling's not just a case of the kids shutting up and you going through examples. We've got to bring in the findings from cognitive load theory. We've got to make sure that the things that are in kids' working memory are the right things. We've not got extraneous load in there. We're presenting materials in the right way. We're doing worked examples in the right way. Then there's questioning. I'm obsessed by questioning, and I know Chris is as well, and I'm going to dig into that when he comes back on the show. What makes a good question? What makes a bad question? And again, how can we use the principles of assessment for learning to question, assess, and help kids learn that way? Then we've got assessment. Assessment is a fundamental part of explicit instruction. And I'm not talking about grades and feedback. I'm talking about making answers available to the kids or again using assessment for learning, again making use of the testing effects so we're seeing tests as learning tools and not just assessment tools. And then we've got interleaving and spacing. We've got to respect and account for the workings of human memory. So I think there's a danger that when we, I think there's almost like a, people see it as extremes. We've got direct instruction on the left-hand side. We've got inquiry, discovery-based learning on the right-hand side. And some people may think explicit instruction is just blackboard, chalk, kids shut up, teacher explains, kids do it. And whilst there is a part of that, to make it as effective as possible, we've got to encompass planning, modeling, questioning, assessment, testing, interleaving and spacing, and a whole lot more. And that's what I'm trying to dig into with the guests that I've, I've got on the show and also with the research that I've done on our website. So that's that for that episode. But flipping heck, I've got so much more I want to speak to Chris about. Top four on my list, variation theory, choice of examples, what makes a good question, and the biggie. How on earth, under a model of explicit instruction, do we develop problem solving in our students? It's the number one question I'm being asked at the moment. I think I've got an answer, but I want to hear what Chris has got to say about it. So, Chris will return to the podcast. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger, he will be back. So, all that remains for me to do is to thank Chris for sharing his time and his thoughts. Please check out his blog. There's links to everything we've discussed um, on the podcast uh, page. Also, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And thank you to you, the loyal listener. I'm loving the comments that are coming on on Twitter. People are listening to it on the way to work. People are listening to it whilst they're hoovering. Uh, Bruno Reddy was listening to the podcast whilst he was doing his drive. He did his back in. Possibly I'm going to get sued for that at some stage. But it's just great to know that these podcasts are, are having an effect. It's all down to my wonderful guests. And I guarantee you, I've got some flipping superstars lined up um, over the course of the next few episodes. So thank you for listening. As I say, if you get a chance, give us a review and um, help spread the word about this podcast. Take care of yourselves and I will look forward to speaking to you soon. Bye for now. <laughs>